Serum Visions is a Magic the Gathering podcast about iterative brewing. Each episode, we work on a deck, a strategy, or archetype we think has room for exploration and brew to the fringes of competitive deck building. In this episode, we'll be talking about the many ways Modern has been affected by the release of Modern Horizons 2, the overhyped, the underdogged, and everything in between. Then, we'll explore playing competitively in formats new and solved, Dr. Combo and Mana Symbol style. Take a sip of your Blink Moth tonic and open your third eye. This is Serum Visions. Welcome to episode 21 of the Serum Visions podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Zach Manasimble-Ryle. Brian Madden, the maitre d'artifice, is away this podcast on a much-deserved vacation. So I'm sure we wish him good health and good vacation. However, I'm not alone, as I still have my usual co-host here with me, a man who's a fan of Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey, and Birut (laughs) Galdikas. I've never read that name before. Arun Singh. (laughs) How are you doing, my primal primate? I'm doing very well. You know, to be quite honest, I think there's Jane Goodall is the only person of the three you listed that I know uh, that I know of. At least I'm pretty sure I know of them. Uh, Diane Fossey and Barut Galdikas, I have no idea, uh, but you know, it all works. <laughs> it <laughs> no, is. No, uh, I I looked it up because I knew the two of them, and I knew there was a third one. This is the um, the trimates. So these are three um, behavioral psych ecologist biologist people and uh each studied a different uh little chunk of the um the, the primate family so jane goodall of course famous for studying the chimps diane fossey gorillas in the mist and uh birut uh, galdikas not many people know uh studied uh, orangutans interesting yeah that yeah. Make, makes a lot of sense i think i'm doing pretty well overall <laughs> you know still still recovering a little bit from playing the challenge yesterday like it's a lot to sit down and play a whole magic tournament at your computer it's not easy yeah, no, um, I get a lot of uh, energy from streaming it uh, and having a wonderful uh, uh, experience with the people in my chat. Um, I mean, personally, I can. it's hard for me to imagine doing a big event or, or even playing Magic in general. Um, <clears throat> now when I'm not streaming, it's it's just like weird for me mm-hmm. to play Magic without, being st- without streaming. I've just been doing it so much. I mean, I, I would say 80 to 90% of the Magic I play right now on Magic Online, I'm usually streaming, so... You know, it's uh, it's it's definitely a thing, and uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing that I like streaming this much, and it's so weird for me to not. But uh, we'll definitely, <laughs> I'll try to keep an eye on myself on that one. Yeah, it mean, seems yeah. like a, seems like a good thing overall, especially you know, <laughs> if you want to be a streamer, it's good that you enjoy streaming, and you you know, just by streaming a lot, you want to stream more. Uh, but oh yeah, 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 it it's... feels like a good sort of self feeding thing, and it's it's not uh, not detrimental in any way. Yeah, but just, you know, still recovering a little bit. Like I said, you know, just like without... I bet streaming is totally different because, you know, you have your chat and everything. And especially as you make a more successive run in the tournament like you were, you get more and more viewers just kind of gravitate towards your XO record, which is pretty sweet. But, you know, like without yeah, one of yeah. those, you know, like without streaming for or without whatever, you know, it's just come back to the computer, the do a round. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty, especially because, you know, like the, the Monkey Blade deck I was playing with is just... 
so grindy in a sense that you know like your only your main win conditions are you slap a sword or a helm of or a calder complete on omnath or on calder complete itself and you hope that gets there <laughs> which is like you know like it works pretty well but they, they you can be stonewall sometimes and that is just like oh my god like you know like i yeah it was interesting i learned a lot and i'm very excited to talk about it but you know i don't one challenge a weekend is, you know, it's pretty pretty hard for me at least. You know, I don't think I'm ever, I don't think I'm going to be able to get to do one challenge a weekend. But even just doing one challenge a weekend is like, woo. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we're going to touch more on the the deck that you've played in the uh, next little while. Um, but uh, in addition, you know, uh, the world is getting uh, better and brighter, and um, you know, uh, restrictions are starting to loosen up. I'm actually going to get to see a bunch of my friends in Toronto to, uh, tomorrow, which is really exciting. Um, the first Woo! time in at least six months since I saw these guys. It was like uh, one of the wow. spaces between the previous lockdowns. Um, so it hasn't been like the full 15 months like some, some people have had to endure. But uh, it's been close enough that, you know, it feels like so long ago it was a different uh, era. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's super exciting. And I got my third, uh, Simpsons, uh, song MTG crossover thing out this week. So that was exciting. Um, so those have been popping off yeah, over you, the last, uh, three weeks. You've been killing it with the content. It's kind of just like content, content, content. I don't know how you find all the time for it. Uh, it's easy when you're relatively unemployed. So mm, that, the <laughs> for very the moment, respect. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, uh, if I if I get to go back to uh, cruise ships, you know, um, I'm I'm sure I'll be able to produce something of some kind because my brain is always on magic. Even on my last couple of cruise ship contracts, my phone would just be full, and and my iPad and my laptop would be full of tabs all open to different magic stuff that I would log into when I had internet on the, on the shore that I could come back on the ship and read. And uh, I would download different YouTubers, uh, you know, league playthroughs. And I'd watch those instead of watching TV shows or movies a lot of the time when I was uh, hanging out on my own. So, you know, I, I'm, I've been all in on magic since I was a teenager. Uh, and even though there've been times where it's sort of come and gone and how much um, I uh, celebrate and go in on my hobby, I just love it so much. It's just so damn good. Yeah, I, I feel that. It's funny how, you know, just how much, when you're just thinking your downtime, just think for random downtime, just how much magic information, just, oh, you know, like new brews, new deck lists, just like how can we use the monkey better? Like how can we pair the monkey with Mox Amber better, etc. Like these are, uh -huh. you know, always on my mind a lot and just kind of an idle thought they happen, which seems to be a pretty common thing with just magic players and especially magic content creators in general. It just yeah, eats your brain and you just want to do it. Yeah, that was Richard Garfield's original uh, description of the word metagame, was all of the components of magic that take up time um, about magic when you're not playing magic. So the deck building, the talking, the networking, the, the, all of these other content things that happen, that, that was the, the bigger game, uh, rather than the sort of uh, gameology, the, the aspect of mm. trying to attack what other people are doing and prepared for. Um, which is, you know, uh, similar with all hobbies, you know, most hobbyists spend a lot of time not just doing their hobby, but talking about the hobby and, and spending time talking about the hobby and, and uh, all the different other parts than, than just the actual action of it. Yep, yep, yeah, makes a lot of interesting. I guess I was kind of actually, I was really wondering where metagame came from. Like, why does metagame refer to, you know, essentially now... For the most part, it just means the breakdown of the decks in the field of the tournament you're playing. Yeah, I mean, but I can, that application, I'm not sure. Yeah, well, I, I definitely, I see the evolution, you know, like it starts as a meta game, just like everything about the game, you know, just like 
how the game consumes your time and where the time goes into building the deck and then you know building the deck slowly becomes like the decks built in tournaments as it gets bigger so i can definitely see it which is pretty cool yeah there's also i mean the concept of suiting your uh approach to uh the field let's say that's i think that's well known from a lot of different disciplines right i mean yeah you know you're in the sciences right and when you have to do a proposal i'm sure you think about you know where's the world right now how does this piece fit into that how does that piece fit into what people want for the future you know um, yeah or or within this field if i'm writing a, a piece of music what is where is it going what is its purpose what is its point it's not just enough to do it in and of itself but how does it fit into a larger uh, bit of life so and it's one of the, the great challenges of uh this world but speaking of meta let's go talk about the meta because good golly goddamn there have been a lot of developments in the last two weeks um we have a good number of challenges leagues cards to talk about uh i mean it's it's very intimidating to uh to start to uh talk about it um i think one thing we want to touch on very quickly is that on that first weekend uh there was a huge number of decks that were uh, cascading uh, either using living end or crashing footfalls to put rhinos into play and using the uh, new addition to modern of uh the uh shardless agent and those decks really did a great job on the first weekend. They were very obvious to take advantage of some of the new cards. Um, a lot of these other archetypes and things have um, had to be developed. And also those those previous decks, they they very quickly seem to have gotten a little bit hated out of the metagame by inclusions like Chalice of the Void, etc. Is that uh, fair, Jiggy? Yeah, yeah, I definitely, you know, I think, I think what you said, it makes, the part I agree with most is that these cascade decks they were the easy ones right just like you have shardless agent you have your free spells fire ice you know all your interaction that you can't cascade into like those decks kind of built themselves much easier and so on the first weekend they're pretty easy i kind of want to you know emphasize two things one is unfortunately i think i need to declare nonsense hours over you know, I, I think it was a fun two weeks while it lasted in Brewing for Modern Horizons, but everyone's kind of figuring things out now, especially with the Asmo and the food list that we're going to get into, uh, where, you know, just like I go into the queues with nonsense and I just get obliterated now. You're like, <laughs> First week I was able to 5-0 with Yorion Urza Academy Manufacturer nonsense, and that felt great. Uh, but every other time I've played the deck now, especially this past week, it just... You know, it feels like the other decks I'm playing are much more tuned, and any of their decent draws, they just kind of pick me apart with my medium creature creature based synergies. Yeah, yeah, um, that that's there's definitely been a refinement of of the meta, um, and some of these new decks. Um, so if I can touch on, let's say at least two, let's say th let's say the three biggest cards right now um, that have been uh, affecting the format from Modern Horizons two are um, a card that people really weren't sure about, which is Urza's Saga. So with the release, nobody really knew what that card was going to do. Now, you and Brian were smart. You got in, bought your Sagas early for something as low as 7, 10 tickets, something in that realm. Um, you just had the faith, and good for you, because uh, that was very quickly realized to be one of the most powerful cards in the format. Um, it spiked up to 30, 40, 50 tickets uh, right over that first weekend when we were recording the last episode here. And... Uh, I definitely spoke pretty highly uh, about how much I uh, s saw the potential when I was playing with it, I hope. Um, but 
and very quickly after that, the uh, the tone of the discussion around that card is does it does it need to or is it in the kind of mold of the cards that are going to see a ban in modern? Uh, Jake, before we get into any of the decks that are using it, what's what's your current feeling on that? Before we go into too many of the details, let's just get an overarching picture. Yeah, no, I love this question. You know, I think. You know, I don't think I I would call for bans yet. I think definitely you need to give time for the chips to fall. It's interesting because Urza Sog was one of the, you know, like the things, the decks or one of the cards from On Horizon that was just, you know, like kind of started showing up first and fast, right? You know, and the deck dumps, it was almost ubiquitous and it was kind of like the first, you know, like, oh, this is the broken thing from On Horizons 2, etc., uh, which is, you know, pretty interesting and says something of itself. Uh, but I don't, I mean, it's a huge pain in the ass, you know, it's especially obnoxious when you're, you know, you're facing your opponent and they're just doing things with, like, you know, you've got them on the ropes, but they've got an Urza Saga and a couple artifacts laying around, and now they've got two constructs, and, like, you've got some counter spells and removal, but the constructs were always too big for your removal. So there is that kind of feels bad that's kind of a huge pain in the ass. Uh, but also, you know, it's not, it's not too, you know, it's not like, I guess... When there's some busted cards, just like you're playing your opponent's busted deck, and it's like when they when their busted deck has the busted card, you know, you feel like you're pretty hopeless. Like I think Hogak's a pretty good example. But for instance, you know, like let's talk about the affinity deck that's running around that you've been, you know, killing it with, doing all your trophies, etc. Like when I face that affinity deck, you know, like the deck seems just so medium and just very inconsistent, and then they get down Urza Saga, then okay, you know, like now I'm a little worried. But I think it's, you know, just like they Affinity should be able to have a card where, you know, like they can get it down like, okay, you have to worry a little bit, but it doesn't seem like if I don't answer this, you know, just like things are going to spiral out of control. I mean, of course, there are the times where your opponent just has like the triple or the saga draws and you just, you know, they just spend all their mana just making free constructs that you can't deal with. And that does kind of, that kind of sucks to face against that sometimes. But for me, you know, I don't think it would, I'm not clamoring for a ban yet. Uh, I do like that, you know, like it's revived stuff like Infinity, etc. But I do, you know, I think we should definitely keep a close eye on this because I can see how things can, you know, get a little boring, get a little stale. And ultimately, kind of like I think is talked about, and I think you, you won't probably want to touch on this too, but with uh, there's a Saga, a lot of the power just comes from, you know, having a land that makes a creature, which is... You know, just kind of, kind of insane when you think about it. it. Has some big feel of the dead vibes, but we'll we'll see. I don't want, I wouldn't want to ban it now, uh, but due to the bakery, like you kind of mentioned or you will mention, I think it's definitely on the watch list. Like I don't think we can say this should not be banned. I think we can say this should not be banned currently, but that's as far as I would go. Yeah, um, I mean, on the first weekend, it was doing some weird stuff, like showing up in blue white control, which had tweaked itself out a little bit. Um, showing up in uh, Charlie the Banana King's uh, four color control deck, <laughs> which was, uh, no bring to light, but kind of looked like it was a bring to light deck that forgot its bring to lights. Playing Ren and Six and Luris and uh, and the Urza Sagas. Um, that has mostly been cut out entirely. Um, um, just so you know, Trashcaster Mage in the Saturday Modern Challenge results had a, a, a very succinct response to um, Bamzing's um, post here where they mentioned the archetype saga is being played in to success involve uh, Asmorano, Mardika, Dyson, and Kuldakar, Amulet Titan, Lantern, Hammer Time, Hardened Scales, and uh, uh, Grinding Breach. And five out of six of those are artifact-centric archetypes, with Amulet Titan being the one standout. Yeah, I mean, I think you have a really good 
point, and this kind of reminds me of when they first unbanned Stoneforge Mystic. Like in yeah. the first couple deck dumps, you know, every like mono red burn just splash white for Stoneforge Mystic, and mm. just like everyone pretty much took whatever deck you could get your grubby little hands on and shove Stoneforge Mystic in there and see what happened. Right, right. Like there were like dozens of decks, you know, just like of course most of them didn't even want to have Stoneforge Mystic in the first couple deck dumps with SFM, and then as time went on, you know, you start looking and okay, like <laughs> your mono red burn deck is no longer splashing Stoneforge just because it can, and I think. This seems to be follow a similar trajectory where, you know, the first deck dump, like, this is the obvious thing. This fits into a whole bunch of things. Let's do it. And now, you know, we'll go, like, two, three weeks later. Okay, like, we... <laughs> turns out it's not a great blue-white control win condition. Like, I'm sure sometimes it can steal some games. Uh, but, you know, overall, I think I, actually exactly what you just mentioned. Of the six builds that it's being very successful in, you know, five are artifacts and one is prime time. Right. Now, um, to continue that conversation... Uh, it does offer a mid-range, aggressive, beat-down strategy to some of these decks that they didn't have before. Uh, in particular, uh, the Asmora decks, the Lantern decks, and the, the Grinding Breach decks. All of these decks had no, they had no hope, realistically, um, with, their, with their sort of core cards. Now, Asmora maybe is an exception, but lantern and breach combo these decks had no chance of beating you down right i mean urza plus one construct that was never going to make it in modern but two constructs and the tutor yep um that you know they put out you know five five six sixes seven sevens oftentimes in this deck that really gave them gives these decks a lot of uh different angles in the challenge yesterday that i played the lantern control deck in one of the decks in one of the games uh, was on a beatdown plan for most of the game before I was able to defuse that. But they really, like, they were one attack away from killing me if I didn't have a couple of different answers or, or an ability to push back in that direction. And, and that's very powerful. I think it makes these decks more interesting and, for, for me, quite frankly, more fun, more entertaining, more just better. Um, and so what I want to cap off this section with is just saying... It's pretty powerful right now, but we have started to see tools and deck adjustments to this. So this is a card that's changed the rules of engagement for this format for some of these archetypes. And it's okay for that to take a while. People are not used to these decks having this kind of plan. Um, when we really are going to see over the long term the, the win percentages and how it causes other decks to have to twist themselves into knots to try to solve... That's when this may be more unhealthy. Um, I think at this point we've dodged the concept of it becoming um, an astrolabe type of card where it just slots into, you know, dozens of different decks without being problematic and it's just free value. I think the the all these different control decks kind of not surviving with the card. Now, I haven't done a deep, deep dive on these deck list dumps, um, especially from just yesterday's challenge and then today's challenge, which will eventually be posted. But I would think it's very far and few between the decks that can get away with playing Urza Saga without a heavy commitment to artifacts. Um, yeah. I think that's pretty fair. Yeah, I definitely... Yeah, I'm just going to second everything you said. All right. Um, but to move on to the next card, which is actually slightly more ubiquitous in terms of archetypes... Um, this was played in Asmora decks, in Jeskai Stoneblade decks, in uh, different types of Luris decks with uh, Blue-Red, sometimes with Dragon Race Chandler, Delvers. This card was played in uh, Grinding Breach decks, 
card was played in uh, Jund, Ponza, and even Nibtalite. And I'm talking about our Simeon friend, Ragavan the Nimble Pilfer, who you are intimately familiar with. Um, so this, I mean, this card is showing up in more archetypes than um, Urza Saga by far. Is more unabashedly um, brute force powerful. For one mana, you get a 2-1 creature. I'll just recap for anyone who's not aware. Legendary creature, Monkey Pirate, 2-1 for one red. Uh, single, single mana value. And when it de- deals damage to your opponent, you get a treasure and you exile the top card of their library, you may play that or cast that card this turn. Now that means you can't play it if it's a land. And you do have to have all the colors that you want to play play that card for. Um, but you just got a treasure and you may have a treasure from the previous turn. So, um, I mean, the ceiling on this card is unbelievable. Playing at turn one on the play is unreal. Um, you have more experience playing it with than me, Jiggy. And in fact, you took a Ragavan deck into the last challenge. How did you feel about that? Uh, well, Ragavan is really messed up, you know, like I think just watching some streamers play and like kind of just, you know, gathering my thoughts on it. Uh, I don't think it's like too strong. Uh, I think what you said, you know, the ceiling is almost infinite, which is, you know, I think probably the most scary thing about this, where you like, I, I was against, I do, I must say, I don't think the health leads to, I don't think the card leads to healthy play patterns, but I do absolutely love to be able to punish control so hard when they don't have the push, because like, it sucks when they like, push all my creatures since I play creature decks but like against I was against Nib to Light I go turn one uh, Ragavan they go turn one sprawl swing in with Ragavan hit a Vindicate and you know just like Vindicate their sprawl land and they scooped on the spot and like that's that's insane <laughs> like it, it, it like you know like what what do you even do like it's you know I mean, of course that rarely happens most of the time Ragavan swings you get a treasure and you don't get to cast sure, something sure. so it's not like the end of the world but the fact that you know the ceiling can literally end the game on the spot on turn one is probably not good for the game in general although kind of you know just like I mentioned I love this card and I do love to be able to just punish especially the decks that you know like Niv to Light which would that try not to interact on turn one you know no matter what the turn one's going to be a triumph pass to be able to punish them for you know wanting to be greedy as hell and be such an asshole and kill all my things I'm down with it for now yeah i mean for for me the card screams of the same kind of um effect on the metagame and i I mentioned this on stream today but uh i it feels like lean and arbiter to me in that this card demands um early cheap interaction and punishes people for keeping uh, hands or playing decks that um follow totally normal patterns for modern um now again, this is for competitive for the competitive scene. Maybe it's fine. Um, you know, uh, uh, Blue Red Prowess had a crappy matchup in Heliod, but Heliod you would almost never see it in leagues. And why? Well, because people play things like Green Tron in leagues, like Storm in leagues, like all these decks with remands and all sorts of stuff. Heliod was a good deck for playing in challenges, not a good deck for playing in leagues because the focus in challenges had a lot more bad matchups for you know green tron than than the league did so depending on which setting you're playing these decks in it's uh you know more or less problematic uh ragavan is probably more problematic in leagues and less so in the challenges because i think in the challenges everyone's if you look at the decks that are doing well right now they're playing like seven to eight to nine cards on turn one that can either block or remove the ragavan yep but that doesn't that doesn't mean it's a healthy effect on the format. So, 
mm-hmm. I, I don't know where I'm at on this, but I just I just, I just know it's not the kind of design that I love. Um, I think it's it is neat that it has the one in red to dash it, and I fall back on that mode a lot of the time when I'm playing it because I just hate playing it on turn one and have my opponent just remove it. And it's funny because when you don't play it on turn one and you play something else or you play a tap land, a lot of opponents seem to uh, relax once you didn't deploy anything on turn one and then you start dashing in this Ragavan and the treasure tokens are permanent. Oh, yeah. So depending on what kind of deck you're playing, you can really do some nutty stuff. With your deck, I uh, played turn one... uh, ignoble or noble hierarch i forget which ones you were playing a uh, noble because you were playing um uh, omnath but uh noble hierarch on turn one rather than the ragavan and on turn two i can play the ragavan with dash attack with an exalted trigger get the treasure and still play a two mana spell yep. you know which yeah. is pretty pretty powerful it felt like or save the treasure for the next turn yeah the, so. the, da- the dash is insane you know it probably if it didn't have the dash it'd probably be a little bit more balanced the dash just makes it an, an active top deck especially you know they tap out and they swing uh, and then you mm. top deck the Ragavan, you dash it, and you get that thing. It's often it's be helped maybe Blood Moon a bunch of times because you know they're tapped out. They've got a Blood Moon down. You have all red mana. Like you know, yep. top end comes the Ragavan. You dash it, you get that treasure. You know, gives you the white you need for like what whatever like disenchant naturalize or maybe even Mystic, wilt. Disenchant, yeah, naturalize. Yeah, yeah. So it, it yeah, it's whack. I mean, you know, I'm gonna I love it. <laughs> I just ordered my uh, playset and paper a couple of days ago. Uh, you know, def- definitely going to be playing it a lot and trying to, you know, especially build upon it. But I do, I do think it's pretty messed up. I mean, you know, I think you make a really good point of comparing to Leon and Arbiter. Uh, this reminds me a lot of Goblin Lackey back in like 2000. Yeah, someone made that point today in my stream, and I, I just so was not ready for that comparison. But it's perfect. Yeah, like 2008 to 2000, or like even like 2006 to 2011, 2012. You know, when Goblins was a big part of Legacy, like especially the old school one. You know, it was kind of accepted that just you need an answer to turn one lackey. You know, like you need your swords. Like if you don't have your swords, you got to force it, etc. And again, you know, when the goblins were tear of the format, just like if you didn't have an answer to turn one lackey, you could lose on the spot because they could swing it. Because if you don't answer, they just swing in and drop siege gang, which you know now nowadays they can grab they can grab muxes, which is even worse. But back when the goblins was uh, a much more popular deck, you know the best you could do was siege gang. But even that was oftentimes with the tools they had in legacy, just game over. So it is. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's interesting, kind of like what you've been saying. It's this super high power thing. It's a one drop. It's very easy to kill, but the ceiling is just so high uh, that it forces you to have interaction, or the game might just end on the spot. So it's it's interesting. You know, like I said, I'm gonna play it more uh, and see what happens. But I do, yeah. I mean, I don't. This does. This seems like a card that's not gonna get banned or anything. Or at least I don't think it will. But it, I don't know. People might get kind of tired of the play patterns. Yeah, I, that that I mean, I suspect that people will get tired of the play patterns. But to be perfectly frank, I was tired of turn one Swift Spear, turn one Soul Scar Mage already, and those weren't getting going anywhere. Yeah, right? I, I mean, this it, it it honestly doesn't feel any worse in a vacuum. It's yeah, worse yeah. once it starts hitting you because you know. But later in the game, it is much worse than those cards overall because there's really not you know. I mean, yes, the dash is good. But uh, the density of prowess creatures, oh my god, those decks, you know. Sometimes that turn seven Swift Spear, when they were just sitting around with two Lavadarts in their graveyard and a Lightning Bolt in their hand, all of a sudden you're taking an extra four damage. uh, Well, three in that case, but... You know, it it really you know it's well time will tell time will tell. So it's here's, certainly very very powerful. I have one more question, kind of on this note, because you compared it to Leon and Arbiter like really interestingly when you mentioned that you know just like Arbiter can turn uh, you keep 
you know, just unknown formation, you keep a hand that looks decent with its fine play patterns, and if they have an arbiter, you know, like, you could be totally SOL. I mean, just, it's kind of... dead on the spot. Yeah, same with Ragman. I mean, that's kind of how, you know, I've been actually facing all of these Thoughtseize Inquisition decks in the leagues, and Inquisition, like, it kind of... Ragman kind of feels like turn one discard, like, more proactive in a sense. Like, when my opponent goes turn one, you know, Inquisition, turn two, Thoughtseize, Thoughtseize, and, like, drop a Goyf or something, or a Goyf into Kroxa... Like, that really, that's not a fun play pattern for me. That sucks, you know? Just, like, they take my Ren and Six, they take this other thing, now I've got two lands and just, like, all my four drops in hand, and yeah, you, yeah, they're, they're still... So, you know, I I could do kind of, you know, I don't really like the play pattern with it, but also I hate the play pattern when my opponent just rips my hand apart to pieces with discard, so... Yeah, and, and, and I mean, again, the all of the, uh, let's say, seven main deck discard spells is very normal for those decks. All of those uh, decks, I mean, they just mean that the rules of engagement for modern in general are, if you're playing a high synergy deck, you have to be very careful about how much you mulligan when you're in the dark, especially especially on the draw. Um, yeah, and, 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 you know, maybe that's not fun, quote-unquote, um, from, like, a raw emotional standpoint. From a gameplay perspective, you know, as long as it's not actually oppressive, uh, it's just another problem to be solved, right? Yep, it's just yep. another layer of mastery. Um, and I, I think, you know, in the last little while with uh, my playing the Velomachus deck and seeing some other people try to play it or replicate it or whatever it is, there are so many little things about a deck like that and this, this, we just touched on so many of them here. It's like, when you're in the dark, what kind of hand do you keep? When you're going into a game two or game three and you do know what you're up against, what kind of hand do you keep? Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, playing the Velomachus deck, oftentimes against Titan, I've kept hands where it's like, I basically don't do anything until turn four. I indomitable creativity for my dragon. I'm basically not, I, my hand doesn't have anything to do until that point. I'm hoping I draw something. I have time, but... Yep. I, but the only things I have in my hand that I'm sure of is four lands, one of which makes a dwarf and an indomitable creativity. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it against Titan, um, and sometimes you get there. You know? Yeah, I've been paid off for that decision quite a number of times. Um, so anyway, um, so let's I guess, move on to, uh, to oh, so sorry. to sum up real quick then. So if I were yeah, to say. Yeah that uh, my thoughts on Ragavan are that Ragavan is a very powerful card, you know, probably slightly pushed, you know, like, leads to slightly unfun play patterns, but also, you know, just like, with just what modern is, there's a whole bunch of not-so-fun play patterns in modern. You know, I don't think, uh, I don't think uh, Ragavan is breaking the mold or anything, or is not, like, egregious relative to the other things you can do in modern, but I do think that, you know, like, it's a push card, it's pretty powerful, and it can lead to some unfun play patterns. Yeah, yeah, that's a good summary. And I mean, someday in some kind of Luris, Mishra's Bobble, uh, monkey pile of, of some kind, that would be my speculation, there may be a point that that kind of get, deck gets to mm -hmm. where some kind of ban is warranted. But it's hard to say that it should be the Ragavan. It's hard to say when that's going to come or if that's going to come at all. Yeah. You know, we, we, we just don't have that information yet. And it's very similar to Saga in that way in that if it manages to do something oppressive, I don't think it's there yet. Mm -hmm. uh, but time will tell. And so the final major contender, major add to the format is kind of the, the duo, the dream team of uh, Asmorano, Mardika, Dyson, and the Kultikar, and the Underworld Cookbook. Um, this is a deck that has definitely changed the rules of engagement a little bit in modern, or it's certainly changed the, sh the shape of, um, of, of the cues of what kind of decks are good, of what kind of decks are successful in the last uh, two weeks. So um, a little, like, when, when on the first weekend we saw 
very few of these decks actually come together successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really that that first full week where people started finding these green black jund uh, different shells, and since that week we've had another full shift into uh, this this weekend. Uh, yesterday's challenge had a winner that was playing blue-red Urza as Mora. And in sixth place was uh, frequent streamer Sneaky Misato on blue-black Urza as Mora. Um, both of these Urza mid-range decks, 100% fair, no combo kill required, playing uh, as Mora, the cookbook, um, Street Wraiths as extra ways to guarantee that you had a discard to get Asmora into play. For anyone who's not aware, Asmora has a null mana cost. Uh, you, you cannot c- cast her for mana normally, but if you've discarded a card, you can play her for black or red. Uh, she's a 3-3 creature. When she enters the battlefield, you search your library for the Underworld Cookbook, put it in your hand. And she has the ability to sacrifice two foods, deals, uh, have target creature deal six damage to itself. And this combination of things, the fact that she gets a cookbook, the cookbook generates food by discarding cards. Um, this has been a major player on the creature decks of the format. So when I was looking at Asmo, you know, like cookbook things, uh, like during previous season, etc., the one thing that totally, you know, I kind of, I guess I underwrote it. You know, I, you know people talked about it and like, oh yeah, that could be a thing. But I think that the success of these Asmo builds in general, especially this was kind of found on day one, and now these Asmo Urza builds is uh, the is Oval Chase Daredevil. Like, that card, I think, is really the yeah, glue yeah. that keeps these yeah. decks together. And if, if Oval Chase Daredevil did not exist, I think that these builds would still be strong, but probably significantly powered down. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's an amazing, amazing point. Um, so in Standard, once upon a time uh, last year, they actually banned... Um, the cat combo of uh, Witch's Oven and Cauldron Familiar. I believe Cauldron Familiar was the half of that combo that ate the ban in that case. Um, and the interesting thing about that combination is very similar to this one in that as many ovens as you have, Witch's Ovens as you have, you can loop the cat once per oven. You get a cat uh, leaving the battlefield, entering the battlefield, and you drain your opponent for one life. If you had a Trail of Crumbs, which was a card that synergized with it, you got a trigger on that, which could draw you more value. Um, this is very similar. The uh, Underworld Cookbook uh, is a one-mana artifact. It taps to discard a card, and then you create a food token. It also has a four-mana activated ability uh, that you can sacrifice it to get a creature back out of your graveyard. And we um, actually um, earmarked the interaction between that Emery and Urza on that first weekend. We yep. identified that in the Teamer deck, and I was saying, oh, my God, this is bonkers. Um, so Oval Chase uh, Daredevil, which I keep calling Oval Chase Dragster, which is a real card. I'm not just kidding. <laughs> uh, is uh, three and a black for a four-two human pilot. Yes, pilot is a creature type, and it just says uh, when a uh, artifact enters the battlefield under your control, if it's in your graveyard, you can return it to your hand. Which means with the cookbook, you just discard it. When it's in your graveyard, it triggers, pops back in your hand. Um, this is naturally hosed by a newcomer to the format. Um, Paladin on Vec? Sanctifier on Vec. Yep, yep. It's a white, white, white for a 2-2 pro red, pro black. And it's basically rest in peace for black and red cards. When it enters the battlefield, you exile all black and red far- cards from all graveyards, and they can't enter the graveyard from this point on. Um, but the point is, yeah, uh, Oval Oval Chase plus any number of cookbooks, one Daredevil and any number of cookbooks means each of those cookbooks generates you a food token per turn. Now, we've already seen once upon a time how Urza 
um, with Gilded Geese very slowly generating you food tokens for an investment of mana at that point, for an investment of mana for land drops off of uh, Gingerbread Cabin. These interactions were quite powerful. They are nothing compared to Cookbook and uh, and Daredevil. Now, I'm not saying that that combination is not or is too good for modern, but I'm saying it's definitely good enough for modern. That's the kind of interaction you should be looking for when you're looking for something that's modern power level. Yeah, um, it it's really interesting. You know, I kind of I don't think anybody. I'd even be surprised if like the playtesting team even realized that just like when they made underworld cookbook if it's just this instant combo with oval chase daredevil you know I, yeah i really doubt there, it <laughs> there's no way it's it's interesting i mean it's yeah i don't know i mean it's kind of obnoxious honestly just like when they especially since emery like this the one the builds now it's funny they start off like black green you know jund etc people tried emery yeah, and yeah. it wasn't quite yeah. working uh, but now that troll king yeah but now now that they have the, the um uh, Hogak, quote unquote yeah that, that last that lasted quick uh luckily yeah uh, but the uh one moment oh lost okay. my train of lost my train of thought oh i'm so sorry no uh, no no worries oh yeah but with Emery, since you cast Emery and Emery mills a bunch of things, you know, if Emery mills your Oval Chase Daredevil into your graveyard, then, you know, just like, okay, you're back to the races. It's pretty, I don't know. Honestly, I would, I don't think Asma or the cookbook is starting to be banned, but I do, you know, I think that Oval, you know, I think that we should watch and keep an eye on Oval Chase Daredevil because it's, you know, it's, it doesn't really add anything, you know, it's kind of like cheap and cheap, cheap and easy and, you know, just like tap, 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 mill, etc. It's, I don't know, like, I feel, it just almost feels like it shouldn't exist in us, and like this, you know, like, it only exists for this combo, I don't know, I'm just kind of ranting, I'm just kind of yelling at clouds at this point, uh, maybe I mean, it's because I'm seeing it a whole bunch in the queues now, and they just kind of do nothing until they top deck their Urza, and then they win because they had three metallic rebukes in hand, but, you know, any deck can have good draws like that, but I... Right, and, and I mean, I would say as a counterpoint to that, um, there are strong counterplay tools available in modern um as a main deck inclusion karn the great creator is an absolute house against these kind of piles they really do not appreciate having that card come down against them um stony silence is even better it's cheaper and it cannot be attacked um collector oof is a bit of a hard sell because asmora can still shoot down the oof as long as you've got her um, yep. with enough food tokens around so uh, and then you have things like Hercules Recall and Shatterstorm that just, you know, really rip apart that kind of board. Um, so, you know, I, I will have to see you next weekend and the next weekend and the next weekend. We, mm -hmm. we need more time because these decks weren't solved, I want to say, five days ago. These yeah, decks yeah. didn't exist five days ago. So how was anyone supposed to know how powerful they would be and how was anyone supposed to know to attack them, you know? Yeah, I mean, I um, totally agree. We def we need more time, yeah. but I do, you know, like, in terms of things that to keep an eye on, I do think that, you know, like, Asmo Cookbook and more so just, like, Oval Chase Daredevil, these are things that I'm going to be keeping an eye on as the, you know, as I play in more leagues and as the time goes on, as we get more results yep, to yep, think, yep. like, you know, like, is, you know, is this okay? Like, is this is this you know, is this too degenerate? Or is this, you know, just like, turns out it's just everybody getting excited that these two decks are well in the modern challenge and they're new archetypes and now everyone's playing them in the queues and, you know, the more people that, pay, that play them in the queues, the more people that are going to get the nut draws. Yeah, and I mean, to the point, uh, to that point, I, I think oftentimes when these decks do play get played more in the queues, you tend to notice the stumbles 
the weaknesses, the sometimes uh, like, yes, you you will notice when the when it's firing on all cylinders or when it's having an average game and it crushes you. But you also might get to see more often how it can fold to hate, how it can fall apart in the hands of a less experienced pilot. I mean, KCI was, Kirk Clan Ironworks as a combo deck was arguably one of the best decks in the format at the time. But there were so few people who actually knew how to pilot it well that mm-hmm. it wasn't well represented. Um, and oftentimes when less experienced players played it, they didn't do very well with it. Um, even experienced players who just weren't good at that kind of crunchy brain melting deck. Uh, couldn't do very well with it. Um, we've also had, you know, within the last little while, we've we've had things like uh, Grinding Breach, Underworld Breach combo with Grinding Station was hailed by many well-experienced seasoned pro players as the new best combo deck that ever has and ever will be in Modern. And it wasn't. <laughs> just just a brief reminder of, of the kind of avarice that has, you know, that has happened from time to time. So... I think those are the three biggest cards in the competitive and uh, trickling down to the cues that you will be playing out there in the wonderful world. Um, so that those three cards were Urza Saga, Asmora, No Market, Dicadice, No Kuldakar, and the com- and uh, with the cookbook and Ragavan. Um, so let's let's just touch really really quickly on some of these archetypes. Um, is there any card in particular that you have noticed from MH2 that has really been uh, making a big splash that we need to uh, address? Yeah, I think we should talk about uh, Solitude. Uh, that card has been oh, kind yeah. of messing up my day. Uh, <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> and just you know, flash in. Uh, you know, it's force of swords. Oh, yeah. Force of swords to plowshares, and with ephemerate, yeah. you just get like a three four one, which is just insane. You know, so, oh, like, the other, you know, like, when I was playing in the challenge, I actually, I wound up beating the two, um, uh, uh, the two Solitude decks, but they were, they were some really close games, you know, a lot of times it comes down to just having, I had so few win conditions, okay, like, it's getting late in the game, you know, I've been one for oneing, I've got a board, but they've also got a board, like, you know, I guess it's time to suit up Omnath with, uh, with the Helm of Cauldre. You've got your seven mana, you equip it, and then they flash in the Solitude. You're just like, ugh, like, damn it. Like, there goes, like, two turns until I can attack again. Uh, so it, Solitude is, like, really, really, really strong. I mean, I think a lot of people kind of pegged it as the best incarnation. Uh, but it seems, you know, it kind of seems like Solitude might be the best incarnation, especially with Ephemerate. You know, all these, like, just grindy, 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 grindy piles now. Like, holy cow. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, grief seems to have been the one that was worried about the most in the beginning, and seems to have entirely, uh, almost entirely, fallen off its competitive viability. Um, and I think one of the things that's important to notice about these two cards is that um, mana is such a big deal in modern, especially now. Playing to the board, committing your resources each turn, and accruing value is is really where we're at right now it's a very grindy format by and large um in these competitive events um, which as a side point i think spell-based combo may come back and exploit all of this greediness that is playing onto the board but back to the point here um solitude allows you to translate cards in your hand for value on the battlefield and in the same color you have ephemerate available which is just nuts the triple removal um and it becomes a three for three, but incredibly tempo positive. My God, and you come out the other side with a three-two lifelink. 
Um, for me personally, play, playing the Velomachus deck, it created a lot of problems for me against mm. um, mono white um, martyr proc or, or, or bird proc or whatever. Yep, yep. Whatever you want to call that deck um, that I was playing against, uh, it was it was really problematic. And I needed to have to ferry down because they had you know access to four path to exile and four solitudes, and it's, it's not hard for them to play both, and it's very difficult for me to get past. Um, that kind of interaction. There's very little protection from it. There's no Veil of Summer for these cards. You, you can't Veil White. There's nothing that really helps you against these. Um, the saving grace is, of course, that a lot of the decks that these cards go into are a little bit mopey, a little bit fair and mid-rangey, um, and so you know you, you can't eventually overcome them, but it is it is a slog. And <laughs> the Taxes the decks have quite the, um, the tool the tool belt available to them now. Yes, slog is such a good way to put it. You know, actually, I didn't really have solitude on my radar much, but I was listening to um uh, the Dominator's Judgment, the podcast with Dom Harvey and, and Ari Lax, and Ari was you know just saying about how just like solitude ephemera is the new meta, and like if you want to do creature things, you know, just like be careful uh, and keep it on your radar. And then you know, I think I wound up facing three solitude decks in the challenge. Uh, I think I went two one against them overall, or maybe even three zero. But, you know, it, like, it was a slog to fight through just, like, all that removal. Like, goddamn. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely a, it's a beast. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and, and that's how we've seen all these, all these decks go. So let's touch on some archetypes. So um, Amulet Titan was doing quite well before this, and with the inclusion of Urza Saga, they definitely have continued that pace um i think they had some good standouts on the first weekend uh this weekend they've performed a little less good overall in the challenges not not so many uh, canister got second so- yesterday didn't he he did he did i'm just saying uh, on, on average yeah 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 um, i mean yeah canister canister was in the finals last weekend but there weren't too many i think um house of mana was yep, in yep. 14th something no no not for 20 something but house of mana was there repping uh, the, the amulet too um he is one of the best players in the world at that deck and canister was the one who was in the finals right yep. so um it definitely was a power up but with people being a little bit more aware of um how to interact with urza saga um it, they, they haven't been, like, going out of control. Amulet is yeah. still an excellent top-tier deck, but is not, you know, it's not tier zero. I mean, so my Amulet is interesting. I feel like Amulet has been, you know, like, one of the top decks for the past almost two years at this point, where, you know, every yeah, set it kind of gets fair. some new stuff, like, you know, gets once upon a time, like, got, get Urza Saga. You know, I, I feel like, on you know, it's not super... Like, Amulet Titan's not super interesting because they're, you know, a good deck and it's kind of always going to always stay on good and it's going to stay one of the top decks until prime time or something of the sort gets banned, you know? Like, there's... I never... Without a ban, like, this deck will never, ever, ever, you know, like, eat obsolescence, etc. Like, some of the other decks do where they just kind of fall out of flavor. You know, I think until it eats another ban, Amulet Titan is kind of always going to be, you know, just, like, a really good deck that if you devote yourself in the lines, you can do it. Uh, but also... You know, like all those traits, it's a lot to learn. All those triggers, especially on Magic Online, when you have like the triple amulet. Watching Canister play, he plays like a pro, and it's just like, wow, my imagine being so familiar with all those triggers. But it's, yeah, I don't know. I'm not. I just play it so often, you know, always run into it, and it's the game. 
I don't know, the gameplay against it is not particularly exciting. It's always like whose ship, like two ships passing in the night, but sometimes they just, you know, not draw you on they turn two. They turn to you. Yeah, yeah just, exactly. Uh, you know, I've, uh, I, I don't yeah. like that. Like, you shouldn't be able to, like, turn two and then also have a great mid-range game. Like, that. that's just a little suspect I mean, to me. I, I've mentioned this enough times, but that that is the number one thing that really bothers me about Amulet is they can kill you faster than most of the fast combo decks with their quote-unquote combo draw. And then their mid to late game strategy is also insanely good. Um, but I think people could describe the Velomachus deck in the same way. So maybe that's uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm that's a... uh, people in glass houses. Um, anyway, <laughs> that's fair. Um, that's good. Good to keep perspective like that. I don't think it's yeah. quite as bad as Titan because, like you know, you, the best you can do is like turn three turn someone three. if you hit yeah, the nuts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then any anyone with a Lavender would stop me, right? Yeah, but you know, like Titan can win just like turn two through anything. Yeah, but anyway, um, uh, Amulet is something that I would consider to be the um, sort of the, the on a, a deck that is tier one, a deck that you should always be um, thinking of if you're going to play a competitive modern event in paper or online. Um, if your deck has a bad matchup, consider having some sideboard cards. If your deck has a good matchup, you may not need sideboard cards, but you may want something that covers Amulet and other things. Okay, Zach. Um, uh, one one last question. What? Let's yeah. say my deck had a bad uh, uh, Amulet Titan matchup. What are good sideboard cards against them? Oh what? goodness. I mean, it just depends on what your deck is. Um, but Aether Gust is usually pretty good if you have the ability to create pre- pressure. Um, Blood Moon similarly is quite good if you have the ability to create pressure. Um, uh, Ashiok Dream Render, my favorite piece personally. Ooh, not not always good enough um, yeah yeah definitely i mean you, you need pressure too but like being if you can turn their titan into a dread maw that gives you a huge advantage yeah i mean i don't know about huge advantage but yeah it's it's certainly not no advantage that's that's true um the the, the biggest problem i have with ashiok is uh it doesn't do anything much to the dryad of the elysian grove and so preventing them from searching is definitely somewhat valuable um but the other thing you want to look at is what are Titan decks playing in the sideboard? They're not always playing Beast Withins, um, and Ashiok does dodge Force of Vigors and things like that. So um, certainly worth uh, noting. And Ashiok is a card that at the moment, not many people are sideboarding for any reason. And so you can really put people in a, in a bind, really put the hurt on them with that card if um, their deck folds to it. Um, although there's not too many that do right now. Um, moving on to other decks in the absolute tip top of the meta right now, um, we've got food decks that are mostly in the Asmora Urza builds, but there are still some people, uh, rocking around with black green food decks with, uh, Urza Saga and, uh, Troll King, Tr- Feasting Troll King. Yep. Yep. Uh, seven, six vigilance trample that they can get into play as soon as early as turn two, if they're playing bartered cow. Although most of the players have switched over to oval chase daredevil at this point. Um, it's still possible for them to get that in on a turn two, but they need double cookbook to do it um, or cookbook into Asmo cookbook. So it's very possible for them to do. Um, Lantern Control has definitely um, popped up. Um, if your deck is cold to ensnaring bridge, consider that you may want some answers for that. Um, Lantern is not likely to ever become super popular. It's no. just a very, you know, prison decks don't usually have a huge appeal. Um, they're very finicky <laughs> to play. And it's like right walking a tightrope every single game. 
Um, sometimes for, you know, dozens of turns, you have to be constantly aware of what are they drawing? What am I drawing? How did those things line up against each other? What are their possible outs? Can they draw more cards? Can they shuffle right now? Um, and so that's a, a, a bear of a game to play. Even experienced players often make mistakes with that. This is very tricky. Um, but the Lantern Control decks also have the mid-range plan, as we mentioned earlier, with uh, the Urza Saga. They can put about a bunch of constructs into play and beat down. Um, some and of them are even eschewing bridge at the moment because the constructs give them so much game against a lot of aggressive decks. Yeah, it's really interesting, you know, kind of, especially with all the constructs being made in Urza Saga. I feel like one of the, uh, I guess, under one of the understars, you know, like underrated role players of Urza Saga now is Shadow Spear. Uh, which is funny because oh, no, it's huge yeah for the it's longest crazy. time it had like Who you know knew? we were like we, we you know we put in our trinket mage we were equipping constructs with trinket mage like in the original yeah, we Timur rosa one like you know way back yeah, when we so we you know it turns out and we i was were, playing it i was playing in pioneer that's where i got the idea i was playing in pioneer in the in the Karn the great creator mono green devotion deck and you could wish for that and put it on uh, some of your larger creatures and uh, just close out a game against Burn. I remember where and when I bought mine for my Pioneer <laughs> Trios event that we our, our team went to the finals. Um, and I was playing that in my sideboard. It, it was registered there. Yeah. yeah it, it, it's, it's, uh, we, we were right on top of Shadow Spear being one of the best colorless equipments that have been printed yeah. uh, up, up until Modern Horizons 2 came out yeah, uh, in, a standard, in a standard legal set. Definitely. I mean, you know, I think honestly, in a vacuum, it's it's okay. But just the fact that you get the, all these huge constructs now in Shadow Spear yep. Yep. gets tutored for by uh, by Saga. Uh, real quick, Shadow Spear is one mana artifact equipment. Uh, you can't you pay one colorless and cards your opponents control lose hexproof until end of turn, which is kind of funny. But the uh, the real no 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 jig oh. jig jig. You gotta you gotta be looped in on this because my chat looped me in on it today. Uh huh. They lose hexproof, and they lose indestructible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I knew there Cauldra was something complete. else. Cauldra complete is killable if you have a shadow sphere. This is true. It's also killable <laughs> if you have a prismatic ending, which is what I personally like to do. Well, sure, sure, sure. I mean, that's a lot more efficient. You don't want a Stoneforge <laughs> Mystic for a for a shadow sphere. But if you're playing Urza Saga in an Asmo deck, and yep, your yep. opponent has Cauldra complete, you can get your shadow sphere, spend one mana, and shoot it down. That's so crazy. Yeah, but the and so it equips for two, and the equipped creature gets yep. plus one plus one trample and life link. And so this is what you know, like you have three six six constructs. You equip a shadow spear. You've got a seven seven trample life link. You just swing like yep. you're not losing yep. that race. No, no, you are not. And it, it's funny, like it's gotten to the point where the um, a lot of the aggro decks, burn decks, prowess decks. As soon as you fetch out that shadow spear. They're like, wait, they're equipping that next turn? Oh, scoop. Like, I can't beat an eight-point life swing. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's, in, it's insane, you know? Oh. Like, I almost wonder if, you know, if Oval... Yeah, you like, you know, like, the thing that's really breaking cookbook is Oval Chase Teardevil. And funny as it is, I think the thing that's really putting Urza's Saga over the edge, especially initially, was the Shadow Spear. Like, now all of a sudden, like, it's kind of like... When Hogak was referred was you know when Hogak was out here and your opponent cast Hogak on turn two, it's like okay you know just like I can maybe chump a couple turns and like survive. But Hogak has Trample, and like why did mm -hmm. they give that card Trample? And then you start to oh, tra yeah. Trample no is Trample is just so messed up, and it's the same thing here where just like if your opponent had three aided constructs, like yeah that's an issue. But you know if you have a couple chump blockers, some token generators, like maybe you can remove one or two. Like you can stay in it for a little bit, but with just you give your construct 
trample and lifelink. Like, now you're going to kill your opponent quicker and you're not going to lose the race. It's like, it's insane. No, and in these decks, I've even had situations where my constructs get removed or I was only able to make one and that one gets removed. And uh, the Shadow Spear on a Thought Monitor, yep. which is just a 2-2 flyer. I mean, it really does a lot of work against the beatdown decks. Having three or six or nine extra life. I mean, I loved Uro. And Uro had, was a main deck way to have a bit of life gain in your control deck. And it's a big, big deal, especially in modern with fetch shock mana bases where you have to do that early. And in the mid to late game, a lot of your aggressive opponents are going to try to just, just close you out. And if you can push your life total from, you know, five or six to ten, all of a sudden you, you feel like you're on top of the world and you're unbeatable. Um, so... Yeah, definitely something to keep your eye on is that. And, of course, the um, tutor ability with Urza Saga for Pithing Needles, for Aether Spell Bombs, for um, all manner of things. The best mana generation you can get is Springleaf Drum or Mox Amber, which is really brutal. So sad. Um, so infuriating. Yeah, but, um, but if you do have the time and uh, you're playing a slower deck, you can get um, Expedition Map. Um, also, I should um, highlight the excellent synergy available through Hex Parasite. It's a one mana, one one uh, artifact creature, and for Phyrexian Black and X, you could remove um, up to X counters from target permanent. And uh, Hex Parasite gets plus X plus O until end of turn. The most important thing about this is that if you have a Hex Parasite, you can target your Saga every turn for uh, one mana and two life, or one mana, uh, one generic mana, one black mana and keep resetting it from chapter three to chapter two during your main phase. And what this does is it lets you tutor through your deck again for something, but you don't lose the saga. Um, so it's a super powerful little interaction, but it is on a 1-1. Um, now that said, Hex Parasite gives you game against your opponent's Planeswalkers, and if you have the extra life and extra mana, even against your opponent's um, Urza Sagas, because you can keep them stuck on chapter one or... or quote-unquote chapter zero you just keep pushing it down from one to zero every turn so they can never make any constructs with it um i hadn't actually done that yet in any of the games that i played but i don't think i played any against any saga decks while i was playing hex parasite um then there's all the monkey blade decks so there's a whole bunch of uh, uh stoneforge mystic slash ragavan decks um jiggy you've been playing one we'll touch on that in a minute um basically the appeal of these decks is that uh, Ragavan is a must-kill creature, and Stoneforge Mystic is a must-kill creature with the combination and addition of Cauldra Complete, as well, of course, the Normal Swords, the Maul of the Skyclave, the Batter Skull. So um, this combination of very, very powerful, proactive creatures means your opponent has to have removal for both of them or they're really in trouble. Um, either one of them can snowball a game out of control very quickly. Yeah. And and people are playing these uh, in either Mardu Midrange or Jeskai Tempo, all sorts of different ways. Yeah, there's kind of, you know, a couple of different shells of these Monkey Blade decks. So they all have Monkey and Stoneforge. And then the question is, like, what do you want to do next? Like, there's, like the Jeskai ones are more sort of a protect the queen strategy with, you know, counter yeah, spells yeah, and very Jace. Delver-like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, Delver-like is a very good word. The Mardu ones, <clears throat> you know, they go with um, a discard instead. Like, instead of counter magic, they have discard and some other beaters. And then my Force the Omnath one was, you know, just like all the threats, you know, Omnath, Run and Six, Teferi, etc. You know, just like bombs, 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 where you're just trying to overwhelm your opponent. So they're all they're all pretty interesting. And, you know, I think the the... The tempo, the Jeskai one is kind of, 
I don't know. People love the Delver style decks. I don't know. I don't quite know what it is, but just like modern players love Delver and like want Delver style decks so bad. And so far, it seems like the Jeskai Monkey Blade ones, which also get to play Prismatic. Uh, oh, I can. We should real quick. We should talk about Prismatic Ending and how that is probably like one of the oh, best removal spells worry. printed recently. Don't worry. We will. Um, next up, uh, another archetype, another group of decks is uh, both blue red prowess um, and then blue red sprite dragon monkey combinations. Usually playing um, dragons rage channelers. Um, these these decks are the sort of yeah. These are also in the tempo shell. They don't have uh, as much of a protect the queen sort of strategy. Um, for the most part in these decks these are a little bit more like blue red prowess where they just have enough of a density of a hyper aggressive creatures supported by burn and occasionally a couple counter spells that they just want to get you dead um and their creatures are all powerful but interchangeably so um there's um soul herder sort of ephemerate value piles one of the challenges um one of the first challenges uh, of this season was won by a bant version of these it was playing uh, i think aether vials elodomri's calls and then almost entirely one ofs which was pretty crazy oh um, yeah that deck that deck is some galaxy brain shit right there yeah um it hasn't actually popped up that much since then which is um not surprising to me as these decks are very fiddly to win with um mm -hmm. they're interesting to play until people start getting towards the mid game and they realize their opponent's not dead and they're starting to run out of gas um, yep. Because they're the amount, the way they're spending their mana is just a lot more fair than what a lot of decks are doing. Um, Hardened Scales won the second challenge of the season, although um, that was in the hands of Dominic Harvey, uh, absolute monster player who I have the privilege of knowing in person, and um, and uh, he was he's very experienced on this deck. Um, it is hyper crunchy. Um, but I did lose to it in last week's challenges where I was, um, I think I was, yeah, I was XO at the time and I ran into a streamer and known hardened scales player, Mr. Siri, um, who beat me on that in a very, very Oof. long three game series. Oh, it was, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. I mean, it was mm -hmm. right down to the wire. Uh, either one of us could have taken it. And he just, yeah, yeah. Damn. Um, hardened scales seems to have fallen off quite hard this weekend. Um, I think it might be the Asmora decks causing them problems. It might be the hate that people are bringing for Urza's yep. Sagas in general causing them issues. Um, Hardened Scales is definitely one of those decks that's like a consistent Tier 2 that frequently pushes up towards Tier 1 when it's um, really well positioned in the hands of Great Pilot. Yeah, um, I, to kind of emphasize what you're saying, I think with Hardened Scales, you know, the deck is going to be as good as how many people choose not for an artifact hate in their sideboards for the weekend. Like, I think that's mm -hmm. the, especially since Hardened Scales, you know, like, depends on Ravager now, is kind of setting up all that scales. This card like Stony Silence, which the Urza and Asmo decks can kind of get over, because they have Urza and, like, Asmo can still kill things, etc. Hardened Scales just cannot really get over Stony Silence-like like effects. And then also, like, you also mentioned just, like, Hardened Scales is going to take the, the side hate from, you know, Urza's Saga. Even something like Wilt, you know. I've been wilting a lot of Urza's Sagas, and it feels good. Yeah. But, you know, like, just Wilt, Hardened Wear Scales. Wear tear against yeah. any of these decks. Oh, my God. Like, you know, they also play Sagas in, as their mana base, and, like, everything they have is a hit. So, you know, if you just have three, four unconditional removal spells against these decks, you know, maybe even uh, some kind of curve top or some kind of just, you know, oops, just crush your opponent button like Stony Silence, then, you know, these hardened scale decks can't really do much. But when you're not expecting them, they're powerful as hell, and they will definitely crush you. Yeah, and, and um, very similar to Asmora, 
um, part of their own proactive plan. In this case, involves walking ballista, and walking ballista in this deck will just massacre opposing creature decks. Uh, decks like humans often just just don't have a chance here. Um, maybe you have the exact right combination of cards where you diffuse their early synergy, and they're not able to put together uh, a particularly good uh, early game. But um, a lot of the time, uh, that's just not the case. And then they will put together a hangerback walker, a bunch of blockers, get uh, Arcbound Ravager, and then get the Walking Ballista out last, where you can't stop it. And all of a sudden, you know, it's 20-20 in one turn because of the Ozolith. So, um, Hate that card. Definitely a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, the Ozolith is really obnoxiously templated. The uh, Whenever the creature leaves play and um, you, quote-unquote, move those counters... Yeah, doubling you, doubling modular those, triggers, yeah. nonsense, absolute nonsense. Like yeah, you shouldn't. The yeah, counter should not be modular. Then also go on the thing. Like I'm sorry. Uh, it it certainly does. Well, it's just the way it's templated seems to be really strange. Anyway, um, yeah, hardened scales. Um, mill. Now this is an important one to touch on too, especially even this week. And in my preparation for the tournament this weekend, I saw mill has been popping off, especially in prelims. Can I say something? Um, well, it, just one thing is that it didn't actually seem to have that big of a showing today or yesterday in either challenge. Not a big one. It was there. People were playing it. People did okay with it. But I was expecting to see a lot more terrifying results from Mill. Um, and there have been some in the last couple challenges, but not this weekend. I faced Mill at 4-2. And, you know, like, all, like I'd seen it on the up and up, too. And so I put a cause like in my sideboard, which got me game two. Uh, game three, however, their turn one was uh, Soul Guide Lantern... Uh, followed by triple trap me oh and it didn't hit kozilek and you know i was playing along and uh, the game was actually oh, interesting no. and really close but kozilek was not uh kozilek didn't appear until like i had eight cards left and they finally milled it with the crab and then it's just like okay this is way too late now and i wound up losing even though i had yeah, kozilek yeah. which was really you know felt pretty bad especially because i started off 0-2 then i was at 4-2 and felt pretty good to be in that run and to lose it to game three against mill against like their bullshit draw uh, with a Kozlek in the deck. Pretty unfortunate, but, you know, that's... I will talk about this more, but just a lot of things you can learn just playing in a challenge. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, and, and you know, Mill has that aspect that I think a lot of competitive modern decks want to have, which is sometimes you just draw a hand that's just so nuts that yep. there's nothing your opponent can do. So you turn two Titan kills. There's almost nobody in modern, there's almost no deck that can stand up to that. Um, and that is a very... Uh, you know, if you really want to do well in these tournaments, give yourself the opportunity to win that way by playing one of these decks. Yeah, yeah, um, you know, good, good to have free wins in modern. Yeah, well, I mean, because you're gonna have free losses, right? You're gonna have free losses. <laughs> you're gonna have free losses to mulling to four. You know, so take some free wins when you can get them if you can. Um, Yogmoth combo has been doing quite well, including some uh, uh, good performance today. Tom the Boss Ross, of course, Citrus D. Just uh, cracking off with that one uh, consistently. So, uh, and my, my friend Ms. Liz, uh, Liz Harms, also playing that, starting to get into competitive modern. So, uh, good creature combo, good beatdown deck, and Yogmoth uh, uh, combo is still doing well. Um, I actually had this one listed in the wrong section, but Enchantress has, been, has kind of fallen off hard in terms of uh, being competitive. I'm sorry, Enchantress, like, just, it should not exist as a deck. Like, it's just, I was, I, when they first, like, oh, Swelling Enchantress, I'm like, okay, that's cool, you know, like, I'm totally down to put an Enchantress deck in Modern, 
but then you play against each other's second modern and it is like the most boring thing, most uninteresting thing I've ever seen in my life. Every game is exactly the same where like they get down their engines, they start drawing cards and gaining life and lock out with solitary. But like the most amazing thing is just like, it doesn't, what's their win condition? How do they win? Like it's... Destiny I, Spinner? Yeah, oh yeah, okay. So yeah, that, you know, I mean, they have like win conditions, but there's a whole Helix bunch of... Pinnacle? I've... I don't think I think they play the pinnacle for a little bit. Definitely Destiny Spinner. It's kind of terrifying to get attacked. I think I've also seen some that run like the four mana. Every time you cast an enchantment, make a four for angel thing. But yeah, there would um, sigil of the empty throne. Yeah, but there would be times where like when this was especially prom during nonsense week when I was messing with the manufacturer builds where you know like I queue into enchantress and then you know just like they have their their turn one sprawl, turn two enchantress presence, turn three another thing. You know, sanctum weaver. They just keep going and going. And like yep. it's their turn four, and I let them go off, and you know they do their thing, and they have a huge board. They've drawn most of their deck, you know, like it's. And then my turn, I it just I just went way over them, you know. They just like did nothing, and then I tapped their t. I had like you know drew my deck with manufacturer and Earth, all that nonsense. I bounced everything relevant with cryptic command. I tapped their team, and I swung, and it's just like this deck is pathetic. Like it's not interesting. It does the exact same thing every time, and like it just takes so long to win. It's you know it. I don't think it's even an interesting deck. It's very fascinating, you know? Like, it, at first I was kind of terrified of it, but now after, you know, letting it do its thing and just killing them anyways because they're just, like, so bloated, it's just like, what? What is this? Like, why Why does this deck? I guess, I don't know. I guess it's fine to let these decks exist. And I think people, you know, I th you mentioned really well that, like, Enchantress is now nowhere to be seen, and I think that's for multiple reasons. A, the novelty is kind of worn off. Like, okay, you know, like we had this cool new archetype, and now we play this cool new archetype. Uh, and the other thing, I just, you know, I don't think it's very powerful. As you know, pretty problem. You play League with Enchantress, like, oh, you know, you can lose pretty easily. And then ultimately, even if you play it, you know, I saw Nassif play Enchantress, and at the end of the, he, he four won the league, and he mentioned, he's like, I don't really like this play style. Like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not like you just draw cards, and you lock up on solitude with solitary confinement, and you hope it gets there. And, you know, it's just kind of, yeah, every game feels the same when you play against it, which I'm not the biggest fan of. But, you know, I think the one thing about Magic is, like, people generally don't like to play decks that, like, aren't very fun. And so I think that part of it is Enchantress is seen less, because even if you're playing Enchantress, you know, it's not super fun and interesting. Well, I want to give a shout-out to the uh, player who's gotten the most trophies with it so far is uh, 16 kilometers, 16 cam, um, shows up in almost every deck dump with some variety of Enchantress right now, some of which are playing Emrakul. Oh, yeah. It's fantastically yep, yep. funny and awesome. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, They that... actually kind of need it to go over the top. And I mean, a lot of the things you were saying there just reminds me of people talking about Bogles. It reminds me of people talking about prison decks. And you know what? The thing is, in Modern, there is such incredibly powerful enchantment hate if you ever wanted to run it that you would just run this deck over. Yeah, but the... If you ever dedicated yourself to it. So yeah. my all I'm saying is it has mostly dropped off the face of competitive play. It has very polarized matchups. There are some decks that will never beat Enchantress. There are some decks that will always beat Enchantress. Yep. And and that's fine. It's just another part of the modern environment now. Um, yeah. There were already decks like this. There will be again in the future. Um, but now I know that Jiggy has some strong opinions on Enchantress. <laughs> I, I guess it's just, you know, I was running into that deck like twice. Like, you know, I guess I haven't yeah, seen it in no. a while. But like you know, during nonsense, during nonsense week, I would run into it like twice a league and it's just like oh yeah, my yeah. god like this is gonna like take this whole game is gonna take 
55 minutes just to like, I mean, just run them. ad nauseum and crush them. They can't oh. stop the Asses Oracle. It's over. I mean, I they still... Have no out. I always crush them. Yeah, I mean, the deck is, like, yeah, so yeah, fragile, yeah, yeah, yeah. but still, it's just... It's, you know, it's the slog of crushing them that's, like, kind of so No, I, I, I know. I mean, it's... It's it's nerve wracking like playing against the uh, Ice Nine deck where they're just gonna blow up all your lands over and over and over again, and uh, and hit you with the um, uh, the uh, the suppression field and all the nonsense that keeps you know and and knocking over their house of cards is sometimes kind of tricky and and it's very very tedious and and you you're always just very very close to losing on the spot, yep. um, with a misstep. Um, but you know sometimes that's very interesting gameplay. I'm not in charge of telling people when that's interesting versus when that's boring or tedious. <laughs> fair, fair, um, fair, fair. I'm going to plow through these next ones just very, very yeah. quickly. Um, so Heliod Companies dropped off the face of the map. Um, black green X midrange, black X midrange is still around in all sorts of different forms with Lurises, without Lurises. Um, there's like smallpox decks. Um, Domain Zoo was a big comer in the first week, um, has mostly dropped off the face of the earth as well. Um, as a lot of people suggested that it might, um, I think it's just, uh, having some consistency issues. It's fairly powerful, but, uh, I, I just doesn't seem to l maybe line up against the food decks in particular once those got sort of smoothed out. Yeah. So two things I want to say going to the B black X mid range, uh, oh, I want to, you know, when grief was first spoiled, there was a whole lot of talk about grief and ephemerate, Malker, rebirth, undying evil, etc. Uh, from yeah. my experience, I think that like. Ephemerate grief is kind of a joke. Uh, it's just <laughs> like my opponent will do it to me, and then we're both on low card. It's kind of just like getting thought seized a bunch of times. It's it's no different. It's just like okay, you know. Now we're gonna hope that whoever top decks better wins. Not my favorite style, but like it's <laughs> it, it's not terrible. It's not like oh my god, the sky is falling. Like you know, it's people once again. People are not very good at evaluating magic cards. I'm so surprised. There were a lot of people that were freaking the hell out about ephemerate and grief, and I don't think that those people should like. You know, you can't let them live it down. Uh, you know, just like there were a lot of people that were like, hey, really. Hey, listen, everyone gets a number of bad takes per year, all right? The most important thing is to remember that you have a limit, all right? And I don't know what that limit is. It's maybe uh, correspondent to your otherwise, your <laughs> other credibility, you know, your hit rate. Um, but everyone's allowed a couple bad takes every year. So oh, you just got to pay attention to your individual creators. I believe yeah. I went on record saying I don't know if it's powerful or not, but I do know it's obnoxious. Yeah, and, it is. and that, that, that's where it's, I am. It's and really it's really not fun, um, but it's not the most unbeatable thing, that's for sure. I mean, I, I totally agree. Now, everyone makes mistakes in their card evaluation. Everyone gets their bad takes. But, you know, if yeah. there was someone you were following and they were freaking the hell out about ephemerate and grief, you know, like you should... Yeah, they just wouldn't shut up about it. Yeah, like, and if you yeah. if you saw someone doing this, you should maybe consider, you know, just like taking that into account the next time you listen to that person <laughs> evaluate cards. Cause, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's not. It, people were like seriously saying the sky is falling, and it's oh, like yeah. I mean, it's it's like the people in leagues salting off about Greentron. Yeah, check out the challenges. Where's Greentron? Where's Greentron now? It's not doing nothing. Fair, you know? fair. And then I'll briefly so, uh, on Domain Zoo. You know, I think you said it like just kind of falling off. It's a solid deck, like you said. But, like, you know, it's kind of the ultimate test, just, like, can you drop a bunch of two-mana six-sixes and win? And, like, yeah. if your opponent isn't doing anything interesting, yes. If your opponent is doing something interesting, no. And, like, that's, you know, mostly it, I think. Like, it's... 
Well, and I think the big players of the format right now just have good tools for beating this, whether it be Ensnaring Bridge or Asmora or, um, the, you know, the, the creature combo decks that just... Yep. they this Domain Zoo didn't have a lot of efficient removal. They had removal and they had burn, but not enough of it to beat these decks that are built to beat Blue-Red Prowess. Blue-Red Prowess yep. is able to, you know scatter shot removal while beating your face down brutally and domain zoo is just a little more ponderous they're they're really only their double spell is slower um their mana is more awkward they're taking more damage from their 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 mana so and they also domain zoo <laughs> lines up very poorly against solitude that's for sure yeah 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 um right. i'll touch on this next fringe deck um uh, during our little recap section um humans has still been doing quite well as a, a good number of new tools uh, including the um sanctifier on vec um imperial recruiter in some versions but even more often um shardless agent um shardless agent just being a good value play um for them psa uh, I mean, I think I agree with most of the streamers when uh, they say do not put Shardless Agent in your humans deck. Really? Uh, it is absolutely incorrect. Uh, yeah, I've just, you know, just even watching streamers, just like, even playing against it, you know, just like, it's like turn two, you like, turn two, you're like, oh shit, what's going to happen? They cast Shardless Agent, you're like, hot damn, you know, like, we're safe for a turn, you know, no need to worry. Uh, and it's they just. Flip it to Aether Vial, it's like, yep, definitely safe. Yeah, like, that, and the other thing too is, you know, just, I remember I saw Spike facing them and like, they had their Cavern of Souls, so this stuff was uncounterable. And then they used Cavern of Souls to cast Shardless Agent, and then they hit a agent and a Thalia's Lieutenant, which Spike was able to use Counterspell on. He's like, oh, you know, these right, Counterspells right. were literally dead. But thanks to Shardless Agent, they're not dead. Yeah, and now my opponent has a Grey Ogre. Yeah, so it's... Don't... don't I understand. I mean, you got to test it. Like, it's too good of a card not to test. But I think that the yeah, overall yeah. results kind of say don't put Shardless Agent in your Humans deck. Well, good to know. Um, and then finally, one last touch point here, control. Control not doing so hot overall. Um, any dedicated control deck is having a bear of a time in modern right now. Um, there are occasional standouts in either blue, white, or esper, but overall they're having just a brutal time. If you want to lump it in there, um, Niv-Mizzet is probably the best um, performing control deck that's, that's out there overall, perhaps. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that obviously plays to the board a lot better. Um, there are BTL Luris decks um, that are still trying to make it. Um, we'll, we'll see if any of these decks are able to uh, continue to have any kind of results. Um, it, this is the hardest field for control to try to deal with, by yep. the way. Yeah, um, yeah. When it's, when it's unknown, when the variables are unknown... When the threats are unknown, it's very difficult to have the answers line up, and you need to in modern. And not only do you need your answers to line up, you need to know the answers in your hand at the beginning of the game, in what order am I deploying these? What are the important things out of my opponent's deck? And even if you know the cards in your opponent's deck, even if you had their 60, um, it would be very difficult to understand how those interactions are going to play out. So that has been an awful lot of stuff about this new metagame, uh, Jig. But um, before we move on to our next section, um, you know, I just want to say, man, these deck dumps, these challenges, the diversity um, is unreal. Um, and the challenges have a very similar shape to the previous ones in that a, a small... Um, 
what do I say, a small uh, constellation of decks seem to top each challenge for the most part. Now, there'll be standouts, but there'll be little little groups of decks that'll do very well in each challenge. And if you were to go deep on it, you'd be like, oh, the decks are exploiting this hole in the metagame. The decks are exploiting that hole in the metagame. Um, and that has been the same as previously, but with so much novelty, so much development, so many cool things happening. And it's just, it's just an absolute joy to watch and, and be part of. Um, and uh, you know, I know both of us have gotten a chance to do that. And we're going to talk about that right now. Um, how do you feel about the current metagame jig? Um, I mean, you know, I'm happy and sad and mixed. You know, I think just everything all together. <laughs> it is sweet just, you know, like you said, being so open, being so free. Uh, I do, you know, I still, I do think that nonsense hours are generally over. You know, there's still some right, nonsense right, right. you can do. Uh, but like, you know, if you want to do something creature based right now, I would definitely double and triple check and like make sure you have an answer to when all your shit gets removed forever. Because uh, that's definitely yep. going to happen if you want to play creatures is they're going to get exiled very frequently between prismatic ending, uh, lava dart, l lightning bolt and solitude. You're probably not going to see them very frequently. Uh, stay on the battlefield. Asmora, Jundex. Yeah, it's so I am. Yeah, you know, I'm mixed. I'm most sad that just there's so much good removal now just like i have you know i honestly i feel like manufacturer is almost like it's one of the coolest cards to come out of this and I, i'm honestly too afraid to play it because just everything you need is like a synergy piece with it and like i just there's so much removal that all my stuff gets removed all the time uh which really you know i'm sad about that uh but overall you know just like i'm happy with these tools and you know like we said it's wild it's new it's wacky you know things are kind of being figured out so things are going to be scaling down a little bit uh, but overall, you know, I've been enjoying it and I'm happy with it. And I'm curious to see what's going to happen over the next couple of weeks. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so we are about to uh, take a little break and then we'll be back to talk about um, exactly what decks um, Jig and I have been playing in the, um, in the realm of preparing for and engaging in higher levels of competition. So stick around. Welcome back to episode 21 of Serum Visions with just me and Dr. Combo. Now, as you all know, normally we have our uh, other host on here, Brian Madden, and he is a sort of heart and soul of uh, pushing, especially me, in a more janky, uh, celebrate the crappy cards kind of uh, direction. Uh, you know, when I was a teenager, when I was uh, growing up with Magic, we really only played standard. Uh, the modern format hadn't been invented at the time. And I loved playing with all sorts of janky cards. Uh, Rite of Spring into Sway of the Stars was a deck I know I built at one point, which is great with uh, at least one Morrow as the win condition. Not the classic Morrow, but of course one of the saviors of Kamigawa Morrows. This kind of brewing uh, definitely you know, speaks to a, a part of me. Um, Modern is a very difficult format to both explore cards you're interested in while doing so in a competitive uh, way. I think that's fair, wouldn't you say, Arun? Yeah, yeah. I mean, modern is modern is very ruthless. Honestly, you know, like it's, brutal. Yeah, is the word it, I usually use. It's very good word. You know, it's just very it's unforgiving. Like your one drops will be removed eighty five percent of the time on a good day. You know, just like your the black 
the black X mid-range decks you're going to face like will oftentimes have the turn one discard oftentimes multiple and you know into like Renin Six or Liliana like it's you know or into Stoneforge now like now the Stoneforge grabs Calder complete it's kind of like an oh shit like this has to die now or else I'm <laughs> gonna be dead in four turns so it's and then you're pushed in other directions constantly as well, right? Then you'll run into Ad Nauseum. Then you'll run into Greenshawn. Then you'll run into Amulet Titan. Then you'll run into Mono Red Prison. All of these things pushing you in different directions. And it's very, very difficult to explore uh, some, some, maybe a questionable card. Uh, a card that tickles your fancy and really makes you excited. Uh, but you just can't find the way to do it. Um, but every yeah. now and then, we're able to take something like Arayo and, uh, and make it work. And sneak, you know, steal that trophy. Yeah, baby. And and make it, quite frankly, I think most online players who, you know, who've been around, they they wouldn't blink anymore if someone played a Rayo against them. They would know what they're up against. They would know how to interact with it now. Unfortunately, um, they would just prismatic ending <laughs> it now that it's flipped. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're going to talk uh, a little bit about something that Jiggy and I know well, which is um, when you have a brew, when you have an idea... Or you just love playing a deck and you want to step it up and go play a challenge. You want to take things from an FNM level and go enter that next level of competition. So whether that's a local 1K, a local 2K, you know, all, all, all those kind of events. Um, but one of the things I really want to focus on here, because there are lots of wonderful, wonderful podcasts out there that are going to talk to you about the nitty gritty of you know, a particular metagame and they're going to use their expertise on talking about what's the best in modern right now, what's the best in legacy right now and how to attack that and what cards are great. What I want to talk about just for a little bit before we get to that, because we both played in challenges this weekend and last weekend. Uh, I certainly did. Did you? Yeah, you played as yep, well yep. in last weekends. Yep. What I want to talk about is, is you and how you're going to do this and how you can do this in a healthy way. Because one thing you don't want to be, and I, I submitted a question to the wonderful folks on Everyday Eternal about attitude, about um, competition. One thing you don't want to be is a scrub. You don't want to go in with the wrong attitude. Because if you want to step things up for a competition level, um, it doesn't matter if you're going to play a brew. It doesn't matter if you're going to play a top-level deck. Your attitude is going to be a big deal. So you should know yourself, know your attitude, craft your expectations to the amount of work, to the way you're going to approach this. So to that end, uh, I want to mention something that's very well known in the Magic community uh, overall, but maybe you've not specifically heard the origin of it. These are the player psychographics, and these were created by Mark Rosewater, head designer of Magic, and, and uh, you know, well-known writer, member of the R&D department. Um, so this is uh, Timmy and Tammy, Johnny and Jenny, and Spike. And these are really wonderful ways to encapsulate why you play Magic. Now, you may be one of these things. You may be all of these things in different amounts, and I want to touch on them very quickly because you know they're they're very important aspects of you the player uh so timmy or tammy this is the, the the power gamer and if you actually see the original card it's basically elvish piper it lets you drop a creature of any size onto the battlefield um and this is sort of characterized a lot of the time by being a little bit juvenile and wanting to enjoy big smashy creatures and things like that but what this really means to me and i didn't really understand this when i was younger but there's more of this in me than i thought this is the kind of person who's just happy to enjoy the journey you know your goal is important to you but almost really your goal is to experience the experience 
and to make sure that you're, you're packed up for big, exciting things to happen. And I know that's a little bit of what we do here on Serum Visions is when, <laughs> we, when we finally find that brew that's really working. That's, that's a big moment for us. And uh, experiencing those moments is, is a big deal for us. Um, so, you know, um, as much as you may uh, poke at some players, if they're really, if they love magic and they've gotten to love magic for many years and you don't understand why when they've never been successful at anything, this is maybe why. Because you're not seeing it from that perspective of just enjoying the moments and being part of those. Um, then we've got Johnny and Jenny. This is the most important part for our podcast here, I think. Um, these are the people that enjoy the puzzle of magic. You like finding cards, finding interactions, and trying to find out how to maximize them. It doesn't really matter how good they can be, and it doesn't really matter how good other people's decks can be, because you're looking for your own particular way to find something, express something, and do something that maybe no one else has done before. And I know, I know I've got a big bit of me that, that is uh, all about this. When I used to play the Niv-Mizzet deck in uh, tournaments when it was uh, not well known at all, um, finding all these random silver bullet one I was being one of the first people to cast bring delight in modern in my store um, that's a pretty cool moment and I, I, everyone who's ever had you know a group of people getting around and being like what's this deck they're playing I don't understand it this thing's happening that thing's happening they've got all these interactions and they're they, you know uh, they're doing stuff and even if you don't win people usually remember that you at least did the thing and it was so incredibly strange um, so that's a big part of us um yeah i'm, and, I'm uh, gonna jump yeah, in real go, quick and say please. like yeah i do you know just like i think i you know johnny jenny i think that definitely matches me the most where you're trying to solve the puzzle like in breach where you get all these interesting lines where you can cast underworld's breach and then you can use that to cast the unearth from your graveyard to bring back lures which can then get you back you know like the grinding station etc without having to lose more cards there's things on those and you know like the brewing yeah like brewing for brewing's sake you know, i definitely i put myself a lot in the johnny uh the johnny jenny camp and I, I think it kind of reflects absolutely. on that. Yeah. Um, and then uh, finally, you've got uh, your Spike. And Spike is, of course, uh, the person who really wants to win. But it's not just because it's winning. It's because winning is the goal. The goal of playing the game of Magic the Gathering, as it's described, is winning. That is the way that you do the best at Magic. And the thing about Spikes, and I've known someone who's a natural Spike... They're a spike at everything that they do. Everything that they want to do, they want to do it the best. They want to perform the best. They want to be the best at it. And it's just, a, it's just a baseline for them. They're always optimizing. They're always doing things the best possible way they can do it. This person in question was um, when they played Warcraft 3, they were the, uh, the U.S. East was the server region. They were in competition for the best player. And when they would play with other people, they would constantly be asking them, well, why are you doing that? Why are you doing this? This isn't optimal. That's not optimal. Like, I've done the work. I've done the research. I've found all the best ways to do everything. And you're, what, what, how are you interacting with this? Uh, you just had a hard time understanding that people would not be like that. But Zach, what if I'm a spike rogue? Then what do I do? Well, now that's, that's something we're definitely going to talk about here. But anyway, just to sum up on that, whatever it is, the, the spike wants to dominate and show their dominance through uh, sort of excellent execution. Um, so Spike Rogue, that's a very interesting um, uh, demarcation. That's the one that, of course, Faithless Brewing uses to describe themselves. Um, spike Rogue, you know, uh, you're, you're looking to um, do well in tournaments, to maximize your ability to play what you play, but 
you want to find things that maybe other people aren't thinking about that are at the level of competition. And this is where these overlaps and how much you are bits and pieces of each of these different archetypes, these different psychographics is important because this is going to tailor your experience. So for, for my example, I love playing decks that are competitive, but usually the most competitive decks don't appeal that much to me. Now, why is that? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I have no answer for that. I mean, <laughs> I just, I've played Blue Red Prowess and it, it doesn't speak to me. You know, I, I've, I've played some Green Tron. Really doesn't speak to me. You know, um, most control decks in Modern speak to me, but I actually know that a good part of that was because I knew the control deck was the underdog. And I knew every time I got a game win, it felt more significant because I knew it was harder. Now, at the end of the day, the person that won the tournament, it doesn't matter how hard each match was. Maybe they breezed through it all. Maybe they got every single good matchup. Um, nobody cares at the end of the day, you know, when they're handing you that winner's trophy for being in first. Nobody cares how hard that was for you. The only thing that matters is the result of every single round, you know? Um, but at the same time, to you, the individual, that might be the most important thing in the world. So I love taking decks that are, you know, non-standard and trying to execute them to their highest potential. That's why, you know, I've never been demotivated over the last few months, six weeks or so, playing the Velomachus turns list over and over and over again in challenges. One, I just enjoy playing the deck. But two, I knew it was good enough to carry me um, to a top eight, which was the only goal I had at the time. But every X2 finish I got felt great, you know? Because I was, you know, consistently demonstrating that that deck had that potential. Um, and so for me at the moment, I am very much in that kind of spike rogue, uh, offbeat rogue, uh, or sorry, offbeat spike uh, sort of realm. In that I want to play something that's interesting, something that's remarkable, think something that people will get talking, um, that might help people find something they don't know exists. And help them realize that that is playable in you know the highest levels of magic competition to a reasonable finish you know yeah i mean i think you said that really well that you know just and i think the kind of i think that's actually a really good segue to kind of get into things where when you're planning you know so you've been a brewer you've been doing well in leagues etc like now you managed to finally find the spare time to spend your whole saturday playing in a large tournament you know maybe magic online challenge you know just like in terms of what deck do you play, deck selection, etc., I think that just you know, first kind of need to take a step back, and this is this is how I approach things, and I think this is not just magic, but everything in general is you know you need to ask the question, what is your personal goal for the tournament, uh, and then you know just set your expectations. Like the big one, the biggest like you know, so the feeling of oh my god, like when you feel terrible, like you know, or like something happens and you feel terrible, oftentimes. What makes you feel terrible is not the event happening, but the fact that the event was so contrary to the expectations you had already set up in your head. Where like even if it's even if the event wasn't so big or even if the change wasn't so big, the fact that you didn't expect it to be that big, you know, like now it makes it seem even more relatively bigger. And, you know, that's kind of I think honestly like the most important thing is to go in with good expectations, you know, just like if you go in determined I'm going to top eight or I'm going to win this tournament well, you're going to have a really bad time at the tournament, honestly, you know, just like there's just so much luck in Magic, so much variance. Maybe you'll just multiply twice in a row in two games and like face right. up and all, that's <laughs> that. Like just being able to 
temper your expectations and have them managed, uh, you know, I think is the most important part for playing, playing in a big tournament. And then that kind of goes into hand with, you know, what's your goal and what's your outcome for the tournament? Like if everything, imagine, you know, imagine it's the morning and you're playing the tournament and then just imagine you go through, you find a warp hole, find a wormhole and boom, <laughs> you're teleported to the end of the day. So you don't remember playing in the tournament, but the tournament is now over. You know, like if everything went perfectly, what would be the perfect tournament to you? You know, just like, and of course, once again, manager expectations, not like I'm going to win, like, you know, the best tournament will be I win everything too well when my opponents don't do anything and I crush them. Like that, that that's obviously not going to happen unless you're very, very, very lucky. Uh, so, you know, you need to think just like why, you know, what, if everything goes perfectly like what would be what would be the best tournament like you know is it a couple wins is it do you want to maybe just go for some epic wins do you want to let's say it's a paper tournament like honestly my favorite thing about paper is i want to be the person that everybody is crowding around you know like i want to have the crazy <laughs> deck the crazy board state you know with all these weird cards and everybody watching the match you know just a big crowd being like like what's happening you know like even if i lose those matches they still you know they really I really enjoy them and, you know, the, I get a lot of endorphins from them. So for me, that's one of my, yeah. you know, larger goals for tournaments is just, I mean, it's, you can't really do it on for Magic Online, but, you know, I want to, I want to, you know, I want attention paid to my deck. Like I want, you know, I want my deck to function. And I want, you know, people to notice like, whoa, like that's an interesting deck. And, you know, of course, you know, since my goal is more, more for interesting decks, like, you know, I accept that most of the time I'm not going to top eight when I go into one of these challenges. And, you know, I think... I really had this realization when last Saturday in the or last Sunday in the Modern Challenge I played uh, Temer Game Objects Yorion, and this is you know a little bit after nonsense hours and I just got absolutely crushed by like a whole bunch of good decks like it was not relatively close like my deck kind of did my thing but I lost to a bunch of chain removal spells which is what all these creature based synergy that you know like if your goal is to go Lonus into Academy Manufacturer if they have two bolts you know you're pretty SOL at that point. Uh, especially if they've gotten your Emery too. And so, you know, I wound up getting pretty crushed, but I still had a good time. I saw some of those amazing turns, and you know, I wasn't sad about it. But these are, I think these are just very important things to think about, and definitely, and the first step when I go to play in a big tournament is, you know, what's my ideal outcome, and how can I manage my expectations so that, you know, like, I don't feel bad if everything doesn't go well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, it's funny because when I put that question to Everyday Eternal, uh, one of their hosts, Julian Knob, who's a well-known legacy grinder, very, very well-known for playing elves, but he's played all sorts of decks, and he's won a, a number of large tournaments. His attitude is always, and he's said it over and over and over again, his attitude is always, I want to win the tournament. But if you pay attention to how he's living his life, he's not crushed when he doesn't. What he does with that attitude is he uses it in a useful way. He says... If that's my attitude, I'm going to do all the prep work. I'm going to bring the best deck I know. I'm going to do the best I can to prepare with it to be ready for as much as possible. But he's cognizant of exactly what Jiggy said. Magic is a game with a lot of variants. Sometimes you can do all the best work, make all the right decisions, and O2 drop. And as long as you're accepting of that, that's fine. And uh, when you're traveling to larger tournaments, when you go to these 1Ks on the weekend, have a backup plan. Be ready to lose. Because if you do lose, the one thing you want to do is still be able to have a good time with your day. And a lot of the people I know who show up every weekend with a smile on their face, 
when they lose, they go, oh, I get to go home and do this thing. Oh, I get to spend more time with person X. I was going to be here playing the tournament all day, and I would have enjoyed that. I'm going to go do something else, and I'm going mm-hmm. to enjoy that. You know? Um, don't over-invest in a game that we know can be punishing and random. And that's one of the things that's going to help you from being a scrub is, you know, don't stake everything on this game. It's it's just not it's not going to be nice to you most of the time that way. You know, um, push yourself to the highest level, but realize that even the best players in the world will O2 drop a Pro Tour. You know, yep. um, they've got better win rates than everyone else, but sometimes you just go down. Um, so, yeah, um, touching on your, your point of deck selection. So um, the first time you and I went into challenges together was last year. Uh, oh, yeah. Right, never, right around never, this time, actually. Never forget that. Uh, yeah, and we played this Kinnan, Urian, Urza uh, nonsense pile, uh, with which you managed to snag a 7-0 through a Swiss. Oh, yeah. Um, it was incredible. Um, but one of the things I want to talk about with that is there's a feeling, in my opinion, and maybe you can you can share your, your opinion on this, but in deck selection, there's a, there's a feeling for me of lightning in a bottle, of knowing you've found something that you're like, this is it. This is the deck I'm playing. I want to do this. And it's happened to me multiple times. Um, uh, the tournament that I made top two, and maybe this is confirmation bias in the in in the after. <laughs> but I no, but I remember having these moments with people, and even having things where uh, I should have doubted and didn't. So, for example, when I was preparing for the Pioneer Trios event that my team and I managed to go to the finals of, um, Mono Green Karn Devotion was a brand new deck. Barely barely anyone knew this was a deck. I played it a couple times in leagues. I think it was uh, like a 4-1 and a couple 3-2s. And the night before the big tournament, I was playing against a friend who was playing um, a, a red-green mid-range deck, and he crushed me. Crushed me. It was like 8-1 sweep. But I knew still going into that next day, I was going to have a good inverter matchup. I was going to have a good matchup against the Underworld Breach deck that was popular in Pioneer. And I said to myself, no, no, no. I know what I'm doing here. I know what I'm doing here. I've done the work. I've picked a deck. I know it's powerful. I know how to play it. And the red-green deck that my friend was playing is just not going to be that common. You know? Um, those are the times where, like, that makes me want to go register for these bigger events. Now, sometimes I like to do it a habit. But when it comes to deck selection, when you really know you're going to be prepared for you know a good deep run and you you really prepared to to go in there with your game face on that's that's what i look for because one of the things about magic is it's just so complicated trying to solve quote unquote these formats before they happen is just you know it's it's beyond us basically even the pros get it wrong so much of the time um so you know do do you have anything to speak to that jig yeah i mean i think you know you I think your points are really, you know, like really well said. Like for trying to go back to the deck selection, for me it's interesting. You said the lightning in the bottle phenomenon, which I totally, you know, there's this feeling that you just, uh, you just know. For instance, the first actually like paper, large paper tournament I top aided uh, was, I think it must have been like 2011, 2012. It was actually modern, and this was like this is punishing Jun versus Planar Twin versus Malira Pod. Like these were the golden days. Mm. And I remember, you know, Modern always has a place in my heart because I was an undergrad when, like, they started making Modern a new Magic online format uh, where, you know, just, like, initially, you know, Gavin Verhey was a huge proponent of it. And they, you know, even before it was an official format, they put on Magic Online first for the guinea pigs. They're like, okay, you know, just, like, it's on Magic Online. Like, we won't... Here's the initial 
I forget if they had initial ban list, whatever, but like they gave it, you know, they, some they did because Bitter Blossom was on it. <laughs> yeah, like so they gave some time to Bitter sort Blossom, it. Bitter Blossom, Jace, uh, Stoneforge Mystic, uh, Valkut, maybe. Yeah, I think Valkut, yeah. But I remember I was walking back from a party and I got a call from my friend from back home. This is when I was at Syracuse and he's like, yo, Arun, like this is one of my really close friends who played a bunch of magic. He's like, you should, you know, look at the deck dump for this format. It looks sweet. You know, like this birthing pod deck looks cool. I think, you know, you should just like pick a deck and like start playing it. So I looked at the birthing pod list and it looked sick. So like the second day Modern was on Magic Online, I picked up all the cards for birthing per Malira pod and like played the shit out of that and like, you know, uh, most of my MTG Goldfish results are from playing Malira Pod, which is like the funniest thing, you know, like years, years, years ago. Uh, but, you know, it was uh, so I, I played that deck, you know, and I iterated, etc. And then I finally, like maybe several months later, I got to play in a paper event, uh, a modern paper event. And, you know, the lightning in the bottle phenomenon, like I knew at this point, I knew that Pod was one of the better decks Like you know, I'd been playing it for months. I had so many reps with it. I knew all the lines. I even had my own version with my own little tuning thing, with my own little tunes that worked really well. And you know, like I said, like I, I crushed it. I exoed the Swiss, uh, and then I lost uh, first round of top eight to someone. I lost. I beaten the Swiss. Like it seems to always happen to us. But it, there's there's very much that lightning in a bottle feeling where you know I you knew that you had a powerful deck. Honestly, I haven't like quite been able to find that recently. And you know, kind of going back to the managing expectations thing for the previous challenge when I chose to play Temer game objects, I played a, you know, I couldn't quite decide which version to play because, you know, like, do you want, like, do you have Yorion so you can do a whole bunch of things? And honestly, I just kind of chose to play the cards that I really like and the ones that I enjoy most. So I, I put four, I put four monkey in it, I put Lonus, I put Kin in, you know, like, I put Karn, I cut Cryptic Man and Metallic Rebuke, even though I love those cards. But, you know, I chose to play with the cards that, you know, like, I really enjoy playing with and the cards I like casting. And, you know, ultimately, it was a solid 3-3 and, you know, just you lose to the good decks and or to the really good decks most of the time. But it was still a lot of fun and, you know, being able to get to go monkey, like, you know, getting to go monkey into Lonus into Manufacture. Like, that was a lot of fun. And, you know, because my my goal wasn't to win at every cost, it worked for me. But, like, if, you're, if your goal is, you know, if you want to win more than I do, then this is definitely something you need to consider. But for me, oftentimes, since, you know, I don't, my goal isn't always to win or like do the best. I sometimes it's just, you know, if I'm going to spend, if I'm going to, you know, find six hours, six, eight hours to take out of my day to play in a tournament, like I definitely want to be playing cards that I'm going to enjoy casting. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's, that's part of uh, tailoring your expectations. And, and in my personal opinion, and I've always, I've said this for a long time, no matter what, what you're doing with, with magic, I think you should play a deck you love. Yep. Um, that that to me, but that's to me. That's the highest priority to me. Maybe people there are um, there, there, people talk about some of these competitive, competitively minded players, ones who are cross format all stars. I'm not sure that they have that same feeling or the same value on it because you know you'll see them hop around on all sorts of different archetypes, and I think maybe it's the game they love more than specific feelings of decks, and that's great for them because you know they're able to do that. Um, I don't find my way my, myself quite able to interact with magic in the same way, but, but that's okay. Um, so yeah. So, you know, deck selection, what, what you need to balance, um, how you would like to perform versus, you know, what kind of deck you think you can get away with playing. Yep. Um, and I think, I think we've covered that well. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I was slogging away. I say slogging away. I was having a good time um, playing Velomachus for weeks here. 
Uh, <laughs> and uh, consistently was getting X2s and the occasional, you know, 4-3 or 1-3 drop. Um, I think I had one of each of those. But almost every other tournament was X and 2 until this weekend uh, where I went the 8-0 through the Swiss. So, um, but, but yeah, but one of the important things about it was I always knew it had the, the potential and I was enjoying myself and, and that's why I kept doing it. Right. Yep. It wasn't that I was committed, it, it c- committed to it. And that's the only reason I was doing it. It wasn't just for some kind of financial gain or whatever. It was, you know, uh, someone put a chip on my shoulder saying this deck was inconsistent and I knew it was great and I was having a good time. So I thought, no, I'm just going to keep doing this. Um, last week it was partially because I wanted to see, could this deck cut it in the new format? Yes, it can. Uh, you know, uh, my instinct was it can, and it did. Um, so, you know, we, we've got your deck selection. Let's say you've selected some kind of archetype, some kind of amalgamation, something you enjoy, something you think is going to be good. Um, next up is the tuning, right? Yeah. So I think tuning is especially interesting uh you know in the brewing or in choosing a deck because there's there's kind of like two ways to do tuning i actually i saw a really you know i heard a really great uh quote from nasif himself saying like you know if your deck is going consistently you know if you're getting consistent two threes in leagues you know just like deciding on what are your last five spots in your 60 like you know that's not probably going to help bring up your win percentage enough like as much as you and you know it's i I thought it was honestly refreshing because I fall into that trap all the time. We know just like you're <laughs> doing a couple two three, like maybe a three two. It's like man, this deck is almost there. You know the losses, the losses feel close and the wins feel you're pretty good. Just like if I could figure out these last five cards, you know maybe just like swap them up, I could get to that three two, that four one all the time. Uh, but I think that's actually a trap, and you know just like it, it's more than that. Uh, but there's kind of you know the two ways of tuning. Uh, you know there's the I guess there's just like, you know, there's mild tuning and then there's just like going for the haymakers where, you know, I think we're maybe in the sideboard it's for the haymakers. So for the, in the sideboard, you know, like for instance, if you're really concerned about how your deck is going to beat Storm, you know, just like you can, or how you're going to beat Dredge, there are cards like Rest in Peace and Deafening Silence with just, you know, like you, if that card dissolves, your chance of winning the match goes way up as opposed to, you know, maybe swapping out like these three cards for these other three cards that are similar and do something different. You know, you can kind of just go to the sideboard and just like get the hammers, which I've been actually, I've really been liking that strategy a lot. You know, I initially <laughs> didn't really do it too much, well, but now it's just so easy to just put these haymakers in your sideboard. That That's that's modern. That screams of the modern experience. There's a lot of uh, decks that are very dedicated to winning on one exact axis of the game. And if you can interact with them on that axis, uh, they, they frequently fall apart. And their entire strategy is in the in the post-board games, they, they want to win the game one, and then the post-board games, they're trying to juke your answers for them. So Dredge is the perfect example, right? They, they have one axis that their entire deck rotates around, which is the, the graveyard. And if you have powerful graveyard hate, you're going to be a headache for them, and they have to predict what type of graveyard hate you're going to have and bring in the correct answers for it. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah, it's very well put. That's kind of like a symptom of modern, but that is, you know, it's been doing really well for me. Like, sure, Soulgate Lantern, you know, maybe you can bring it in against Luris Jund or like the Luris decks, and you can bring it in against a couple, and it's good against Dredge too. But then, you know, Rest in Peace is just like lights out for Dredge and some other graveyard strategies. So for me, I've been, especially if you're in white and you can afford them, I've really been liking the sideboard, the heavy-handed sideboard haymaker strategy. Uh, But otherwise, Mm -hmm. what about, so for you, how does tuning really work for you, Zach? Like, I guess, 
since you've been working on Bellamachius, which is, you know, you've been working on for much longer than I've been working on some of these brews, and also it's just been around longer and you've been playing more with it, how do you, what are your thoughts on just like the, on trying to get those small tune-ups, quote unquote? Yeah, um, that's a really good question because, you know, um, with my YouTube channel, I try to play a large variety of decks all the time. And I think people, hmm. I I usually run them as I see them. If someone's put up a 5-0 with a deck in the deck dump, I usually play them right as is. And I notice a lot of streamers don't do that. They'll they'll immediately change cards to suit their opinion on what's good in the metagame. And, and that's good. Um, the reason I do it the way that I do it is I'm ready to be surprised. I'm ready to have my assumptions poked at. Um, and I try to keep an open mind with that. Um, and I think it helps me with a little bit of tuning. So for the Velomachus deck, I would say this is one of the first decks in a while that I've created a level of mastery about. Yep, I, yep. I wrote a 5,000 word article about it. You can find it on faithsbrewing.com. If you Google Velomachus turns a warped deck for modern, you will find that article. And... You know, one of the things that was one of my tournament secrets back in the day when we were playing in paper was to memorize my deck list. And this was for a lot of reasons, but uh, which I'll, one of the biggest ones I'll touch on later. But one of the things is to, to get very in deep with your deck, to understand every single selection, um, because you're only playing 60 main deck cards, 15 sideboard cards, maybe 80 main deck cards. But you, you should know how many of each of these things you're you're getting along with and how they interact with your general overall plan. So the Velomachus deck in particular, um, this deck in the main deck is super powerful. And what I mean by that is Velomachus coming down on turn four even, or three if you're playing the Grow Spiral version, can end the game on the spot, and very few decks are playing um, something that can solidly interact with that in game one. Um, and that's incredibly powerful. Taking infinite turns with a Renin Six Emblem is very powerful. Uh, it's it's very difficult for many, many modern decks in their main deck to have an out for one or both of these when you can position yourself for it. And the deck also contains a lot of cards that I love because they give you answers against a wide variety of things. Teferi Time Raveler is the perfect example. Teferi uh, bounces almost any kind of hate piece that your opponent could go and get with their Karn, etc. cetera. Uh, Indomitable Creativity itself protects itself by being able to remove things like Grafdigger's cages or opposing creatures that are some kind of hate effect. Um, so with that in mind, you need to know what your deck's vulnerabilities are, what its strengths are, and that's where you tune. So for, say, the challenge I had this weekend, I never ran into Mill, but there's a Kozilek in my sideboard. Why is there a Kozilek in my sideboard? I did the research on Mill... Uh, recently, or rather, I did the, the research on what has been performing very, very well in the metagame recently. So this is metagaming. This is the, the word metagaming. This is what you want to do. Go look at a bunch of challenges, prelims. Um, don't look at league data. League data, league data is useless for um, real metagaming. <laughs> uh, it, it will provide you with information on fringe strategies that you might want to know about. But one of the most important things is... Um, if you're playing control, it's more important to know every single deck in the format. If you're playing a modern deck with a reasonable proactive plan, like the Velomachus deck, um, that will get you through a lot of um, 
playing against unknown decks, playing against unknown cards, playing against unknown um, things. So you want to identify the major players. So, for example, I found that Mill was doing very well. I made an adjustment that would help me there because I know Mill could win against my deck. They could snipe Velomachus with um, a Surgical Extraction in game one. That would make winning very difficult for me. And the rest of their deck is able to end you pretty effectively. Um, so I wanted to make sure I had a little extra strength in that matchup. And it ended up being useful in a number of other matchups, specifically because I chose Kozilek, not Emrakul or Ulamog, because it's the most playable of the original Eldrazi Titans, and I managed to cast it multiple times in different matchups where you wouldn't expect it. Um, so tr trying to find ways to shore up your bad matchups is important. Um, knowing your good matchups. Amulet Titan. I have never lost a match against Amulet Titan in uh, challenge level play with Velomachus turns. And knowing that is a big deal. Knowing that one of the best decks in the format is almost a buy for you is a huge, huge deal. Um, seeing that Blue-Red Prowess, which I've had issues with in the past, was on the downswing was, again, something that I wasn't going to change which deck I was going to choose, but I at least had a little more uh, confidence going into this one. Um, and knowing that these Asmora food decks were in. Now, on the last week, I thought sideboarding Prismatic Ending was going to help me. but uh, And it, it did. But what I was noticing was the general shape of the format. Um, I didn't feel like there were so many linear combo decks being played. So I didn't need the main deck growth spirals as much as I wanted more main deck answers to one mana permanents, such as uh, the Underworld Cookbook, as more on a Mardukadites and a Kulikar, Ragavan, uh, all of these things. So I moved my sideboard card, Prismatic Ending, into the main deck, and that freed up more sideboard slots for me to have things like uh, Stony Silence, which I noticed would um, hate out... The Affinity decks, which I thought might have a good showing, they didn't, but Stony Silence wasn't just for them. It was also for these food decks, and it was also for Hardened Scales, uh, which I did run into, both last week and this week. Um, so these are the kind of things you want to do, but you can only really do if you have a good understanding of where the format is, where the format's moving, what decks are popular, what streamers are talking about. They have a lot of influence. What pro players are talking about, they have a lot of influence. And finally, exactly how your deck lines up against them now and exactly how the cards that you're going to add to it will help you. Yeah, I mean... I think you explained it really well, and yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I would say you explained that very well. <laughs> yeah, a lot of words. <laughs> it's like um, trying to think, what can I add? It's like, well, I think you cover all the bases. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just the stuff I've been uh, thinking about for the last little while. Um, Definitely. So let, right. let's come back. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, when I was going to say, I think this is good. So, you know, you made some good points about deck selection, tuning, etc., especially the small things. Uh, you know, you can plan, and I have a good story about this. Now, you can plan all you want. You can play all the practice leagues. You can kill it, etc. And then you get to the day of the tournament, and you play in the tournament. And this is, you know, the execution, the analysis, and attitude. And this is when, you know, you learn that magic can be a very harsh mistress. When the rubber hits the road, baby. So I and just you know what you know um, these things will help you when. You run into situations, as I did yesterday, where I said, I lost that game, but I'm confident of these choices I made. I'm medium confident of these choices I made. That choice was 100% wrong. <laughs> if you know all these things, it's actually easier to move through. Yep, yep. Yeah. And, you know, I can. I want to kind of start with this because 
Uh, so I've been working on a, uh, uh, you know, on an Omnath Monkey Blade list, and I kind of, you know, so last Saturday I played the Temur Urza objects into 3-3, and, you know, it just felt like prismatic ending and removal spells were better than my deck, and I wanted to be the bad guy, and okay, so how can we, like, kind of make the most oppressive deck possible? So I came with 22 lands. This is Omnath colors, red, green, white, blue, you know, fetches, shocks, etc., uh, three Mox Amber, four Bolt, four Agavan, four Noble, four Stoneforge, four Ren, four Teferi, one Royal Scions, one Sword of War and Peace, that's my favorite sword, four Omnath, Batterskull, Cauldra Complete, and four Prismatic Ending. So this is just, you know, just oppression, like oppressive cards, and now Cauldra Complete makes Stoneforge Mystic an actual win condition instead of just a stall condition. Uh, so <laughs> I... The first draft of this, actually, I wound up trophying with, uh, which was which felt pretty sweet. Uh, and then I played another, played another league, and then I went four one in that league, and just the deck was feeling super strong, super solid. You know, Ragavan messed up. Omnath is insane. Like it's, I don't, I, you know, I just Ren and Six is also insane. I just feel bad when I play decks that don't have these insane cards because <laughs> it's just like, oh, you multi five and you don't have Ren and Six, like you're probably gonna lose. Or like, there's so many times where it's like, I, you know, I need a, to top deck a miracle. And, you know, you, like, you draw it's Omnath, you cast Omnath, you draw a fetch, and, you know, just, it's okay, like, there's a miracle. Like, we've gained eight life, and we're back in this from, you know, being top-decking and having nothing on the battlefield. Uh, so I just, you know, honestly, I feel kind of like some FOMO when I don't play these cards now, because I'll try and play nonsense, and I just get absolutely crushed, which feels quite unfortunate. <laughs> uh, but, so, I trophy. It's hard to go back to being mortal. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, yeah, very, very eloquently put, it is hard to go back to being mortal. <laughs> And then so I then I went to the Steve stream and he was, you know, trying to come up with something. And so I kept I bothered him a little bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan of Gav. Actually, I've been a sub to him for like or I've been I've subscribed to him for like over two years at this point. So it's crazy where really? the time. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy, crazy where the time goes. And so, you know, so we, yeah, there's I mean, there... I, I, I've actually been a fan of him since I was a teenager. And I was reading about the teenage sort of wonderkind uh, Gabe Nassif, who was on the Pro Tour uh, during the Mirrodin block era. This <laughs> just when I got into magic and I didn't know there was a pro scene. And I just remember seeing pictures of this, you know, young, young guy who's like 14, 15, 16, whatever he was at the time playing on the Pro Tour. It's crazy. Sorry, continue, please. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just huge, yeah. huge, huge fan of of Nassif in general. Uh, but you know, I bothered him a little bit. I'm like, hey, this. And so he, uh, you know, so he took my list and he cut a lot of the nonsense. Of course, you know, cut the 61st card, change War and Peace for Fire and Ice, which is probably better but less cool. You know, cut some Ambers because <laughs> they're a little irrelevant. And he also managed to trophy uh, with it, which was you know really. It's always exciting when someone picks up your deck and trophies with, especially someone like Nassif, who is you know like one of the best ever. Uh, funnily enough, his list got published and mine didn't. Second time a trophy has been stolen from <laughs> me, which, you know, I'm starting to wonder if maybe there's something, it has a preference, the algorithm has a preference for publishing the last list, the last similar list. Uh, now, you know, I mean, two, N equals two is not quite enough, but N equals two is more than one. And, you know, I'm definitely going to keep an eye on this because, you know, it is, you know, we don't, nobody knows how this whole list pro publishing thing happens at Wizards. I think... The best we know is that it's probably somebody hits an export button and sometimes they forget it and they don't publish the lists. Uh, but otherwise, you don't know much about it. And so, you know, other than the 20 cards similar. So, uh, so Nassif's got publishers exciting. And then I took this through another league. Uh, yes, what's today? Today's Sunday. So this was Friday night in preparation for uh, the challenge on Saturday. Just, you know, double check. And I 4-1 that too. So, you know, deck was feeling great and I was feeling super, super good about it. Uh, in the challenge, I wound up 
going 4-4. I started off 0-2, I rallied to 4-2, uh, and then I lost the last two in like some super, super close ones. But, I mean, you know, so 4-4 is kind of unfortunate, especially after like doing so well in leagues, etc. I even actually played in the league earlier today with the list, just to double check, and I also 4-1 that. Uh, with just a very narrow loss to uh, Black-White that ephemerated a grief turn one on the play and just like barely got there. Uh, so that's, you know, so... I just just want to double check because it felt like four four was a little lackluster for how the deck was feeling, uh, but none of you know. Once again, you can plan and you can you can put in all the time you want. You know, put in all the planning, get in all you know, just do whatever you need to do. But then it's the day of the tournament where just you know who knows where things can happen. For instance, I lost my first round to Green White Heliod. Uh, you know, it was a close game three. Just like we were both top decking and they top decked to Coco into Infinite Life, which was rather unfortunate. Uh, game two, I lost to Eldrazi Tron. Uh, Game one, you know, they had Natty, they had Natty Katron into Karn, the great creator. Game two I took, and game three was like once again neck and neck and super close. I took the next four to rally for two, just again a whole bunch of like other decks, and you know the the deck felt great. Uh, at four two, I wound up facing Blue Black Mill. Uh, game one, they take you know pretty easily. I mean their their hand was they had a triple crab start, so that was that. Uh, game two, you know like. They actually had a really nuts start again, but once again, but I brought in Kozilek, so Kozilek saved the day. But then game three, uh, you know, I keep a pretty decent hand. Uh, their turn one is land, uh, Soul Guide Lantern, pass. You know, I fetch for a Hierarch, and they triple Archive Trap me, and they don't. So this is with the Lantern out. So in response to the Kozilek trigger, they can, like, exile my graveyard and make me lose my graveyard instead of having it reshuffle in. Uh, they didn't yep. hit They didn't hit Kozilek, and just what kind of wound up happening is, like, you know, I was grinding. Their, their start wasn't super fast after that, and they were kind of light on land, so I managed to, like, get into it and, like, almost get them down. Uh, but eventually they got, like, two crabs going, and they started milling me. And with eight cards left, they finally hit the Kozilek. And I couldn't deal with the Soul Guide Lantern. Uh, so by that time, you know, they just exiled. And so I did, you know, I wound up losing to Mill uh, with the Kozilek in my deck, uh, which is, you know, not how it's supposed to happen. But once again, you kind of just going with these, you can plan all you want. But like in the end, you know, we're playing a card game with a lot of luck based on the top of the deck. And even though I brought my Kozilek and Mill, I was prepared, etc., you know, I still lost to it, even with my, my Trump hate card. And so that's just, you know, like, I think it kind of, you know, with these tournaments, I think it's something really interesting to keep in mind. Is you know, a lot of it is just like luck. You know, just like if your if your opponents draw better than you every round, you will not top eight a tournament, no matter how well you play. And that's just straight up the facts of Magic. Where like if your opponents draw better, I think Zach. Hopefully, you can tell this story. You had an amazing line against a Lantern player where they were like trying to keep you off your Renin Six and they sequences so that you could veil up Summer to draw into a Renin Six and get like a three. It was just <laughs> oh, like oh no, yeah. It was no. I, I mean, it was just was, insane. It was then, more luck. It was more luck than anything else. Oh yeah, I mean, it was and, it was one hundred percent. But you know, just I remember like you know after seeing that like holy shit, you <laughs> then you're just like woo, you know, like nothing's gonna like after that luck, nothing's gonna stop me top hating this tournament and like you know that's <laughs> that's exactly it. I just, it was just the feeling of that moment. I mean, if anyone is interested, there's a clip of me popping off after that happened. But um, I, I think it was the. It might have been game three against the Lantern player, and I kept an incredibly risky opener um, that had a Renin Six in it, and I needed to draw into a fetch land. And my opponent led on Lantern of Insight, and um, I led on an untapped. No, it was, I think I had. No, I had the fetch land, but I needed a second land. 
because I had the option of fetching a Triome or fetching a green source. So I had the, the Ren and Six and I had the Veil. If they had gone turn one discard, I probably would have been screwed. But they didn't. They went turn one lantern. They went turn two discard, and I had to fetch, but I was gonna be mana I was gonna be color hosed if I didn't find another land. And then after I shuffled off after the fetch um, to play the Veil of Summer, there was a Renin Six on top of my deck, and my opponent shot their lantern to shuffle away the, the Renin Six. And then I drew a land. <laughs> and so you had the Renin Six in hand. I thought I wanted the Renin Six off the top of my deck. I already had one in my hand, and what I needed was any land. And I was going to be stranded potentially for multiple. Oh my God. It yeah. was. Oh, it, it's. It's. It's probably very difficult to um, to understand exactly what we're talking about yeah so um, i but if you if you go watch that clip i mean it's it's pretty unreal yeah um, i think this is you know a really good reminder to everyone that just what determines how many of these how many how what determines how frequently you top eight you make top eight in these challenges is just how frequently you play them like there's no like you know like Zach's amazing. This was game three for being undefeated against Lantern, and you know like Zach had that crazy lucky play, and you know just you know I mean not taking anything away from Zach or anything away from ourselves when we make these awesome plays and things work like that. But you're really, it is at least for me, it is so easy to get caught up in you know just like being very results oriented. Like oh you know just like I can't get this or in these leagues I don't draw well or this time I don't draw well or you're like playing this tournament and just don't draw well. But you know. There's just luck and variance in the game, and like you're, you're not gonna win a tournament if just so, like your opponents always draw better than you. Like you know, there's that's an aspect that you can't really control. Mm -hmm. I, I want to um, pull back to some larger topics as we're as we're closing out today. Um, so the one you're talking about right now, this is a fascinating topic to me, and I, I think the um, I think Slansky, I want to say, is a writer about um, poker or game theory or something. The concept is, uh, I, I don't know exactly, I should look it up, and hopefully I will or Brian will hear this and he'll look it up and put it in the show notes. Um, but um, the, the concept of Slansky Bucks, so what this is, is um, there's a method for playing poker by which you win virtual dollars based not on whether or not you won the hand, but whether or not you were statistically likely to win the hand. Basically what you do is instead of actually playing poker as poker, you play poker as a game of odds. And if you always take the correct play on the odds, you win based on your percentage. So let's say I'm 73% to win this hand. Well, that means I get 73 points, right? If I make one play versus another play. And that's kind of what you want to try to do as much as you can in Magic. Mm. Percentage playing. This is very, very important. Now, reading your opponent is also very important and that affects the percentages. Sometimes something happens in a game and you go, oh, I know exactly what card they have in their hand. I know what I need to play around. Sometimes percentages are um, invisible to anyone who's not, who doesn't know the, the two deck lists exactly. For, for example, when I'm playing Velomachus, am I boarding in how many Aether Gusts against a deck with Blood Moon? All of them. The answer is all of them. Because if it resolves, it doesn't matter what happens after that. I've basically lost the game. Or I, I bend my entire game plan around making sure I have an out against that Blood Moon unless I absolutely cannot afford to. Unless the option is lose or play the card that would prevent the Blood Moon. And so you need to know your deck. You need to know your game. You need to know the matchup so you can make these percentage plays 
and then go back to those moments and go, I know I made the right percentage play or try to learn from them. And this is the next topic I want to touch on. But Yeah, so I think this sounds a lot like expected value in game theory. Yes, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, just your it's goal. It's very similar. Yeah, like you just, you want to maximize, you know, your goal is to take the line that will maximize your chance of winning. You know, like maybe, like Zach said, this has got a 70% chance to win and a 30% chance to lose. You know, just like maybe you have to veil up somewhere into something. And like, you know, you take that play and it turns out you lost. And had you taken the other play, you would have won. But like, you still need to understand that you took the correct play. And if you want to consistently do well in tournaments, you need to take the correct, the higher percentage play, regardless of whether or not it works out for you. Right. Which and is... looking at games in a larger scope is very mm -hmm. difficult sometimes with magic. Looking at the play that you need to make three or four or five turns away, maybe an unknown number of turns away, maybe you'll never need to make that play. Uh, in that specific game, but knowing that that potential exists is important sometimes on, on, on certain interactions with certain decks. Um, so, yeah. And so, but this is something that I want to talk about very particularly. So, cause this relates very much to my experience training for and becoming a professional musician. And that is the, the disparity between execution and analysis, which is what I titled the section. And the reason I want to highlight this is this is incredibly important. When you are in a situation where you must be executing at your highest level, you need to pull out as much analysis from yourself from that moment as you can. You want to do all your analysis during your preparation for execution. So what I mean is musicians who practice all the time, but never actually end up being good players. What is a big difference between them and the musicians who practice and do become good players? It's practicing for performance. You're not practicing to practice, you're practicing to play. And when you're playing magic, it's a very difficult thing to do because magic affords us a lot of time for analysis during the game. Now, this is my personal opinion on it, so you can differ, and I'm sure there are great players who do, but especially once you're playing paper magic and you're sitting across from someone and there's judges around you and there's a crowd around you, you can't talk to your friends, you can't talk to everyone, it's just you in your head facing down your opponent and you have to make your plays at a reasonable pace. As much analysis as possible, you want to know it deep inside so that you don't need to think about it so hard so that you can very quickly come to the correct decisions to make as you go. Um, with the Velomachus deck, that's the reason I went and I did the math and I made the spreadsheet with all of the potential chances to play these taking turn spells. Not because it really affects the way I play the game, but because it affects how much I need to think about different things when I'm going for plays. And I'm able to look at these things and go, am I satisfied with these numbers? Yes, I was. So I continued to play mm. the deck. Um, when you're in a game trying to figure out these odds, you know, trying to do hypergeometric math in your head, not, not a good plan. You know, you want to do this work beforehand. You can't try to come up with an idea during a match and try to execute on it unless you are truly, truly a genius level player, um, you know, with, you know, maybe decades. And maybe that works for other people. But I personally don't think I'm that smart. And even when I am that smart, 
maybe I'm going to crack under stress and it's just not going to come together on that day. I want, I want to mitigate all of these things as much as possible. And by spending my time before the tournament doing good analytical work and focusing on executing during those high stress periods, that that's a way to divide things up. Um, specifically, the parts of your brain that are good at execution are sort of opposed to those that are good at analysis and vice versa. If you talk to um, uh, athletes who execute at the highest possible level, oftentimes they'll have a hard time analyzing what, what happened. You know, they'll talk about sort of blanking out their whole memory of something like a, a champion slalom run. A gold medalist might not really remember, you know, this two-minute interval of their life. Why? Because every fiber of their being was in the execution. And as I mentioned before, magic is tricky because there's a lot of sort of, quote, downtime. You know, there's a lot of, especially with magic online uh, and the chess clock. It's it's a very different game from playing in paper because there's be sometimes these long pauses and sometimes it's hard to stay focused on the game. Um, that's why, personally, I find streaming to be a bit of a blessing and a curse. It's a distraction, but it's also a way to kind of constantly fill space and keep me in total focused on the activity of playing Magic. Because mm -hmm. um, usually the chat's commenting on the game, they're commenting on this thing, they're commenting on potential lines. <laughs> sometimes they're <laughs> distracting. Sometimes um, they're telling you all the wrong lines that you know are deterministically incorrect, but they will not let right. it go that this is the line you should take <laughs> and they know best. Why don't you do thing X? Because I can't do thing X. Oh, I didn't know you can't do thing X. Oh, that's okay. Anyway, the point is, um, I, I think I just think um, it's it's a great benefit for me, and maybe it'll be a great benefit for you to start thinking about the way you interact with music, such as the way that an athlete might interact with their sport, as a musician might interact with music, as an artist might interact with their art. Performance psychology is is this uh, sort of realm of stuff. And I, I know um, the uh, Arena Decklist podcast definitely covered this in a very uh, good way on a bunch of supplemental episodes with uh, Brian Gottlieb and the, the performance psychologist who was... Uh, who, who would guest host on there. I forget the name of them. The episodes are uh, titled Head Games, uh, G-A-M. And uh, those, those are a great listen if you're, if you're interested in more stuff in, in this direction. Um, things like how to untilt, things like how to you know, uh, approach these kind of topics more. But I find, at minimum, thinking about this as a real part of the playing experience, this yep. is a big, big, big deal. Um, and you can watch me kind of be excited and pop off on stream. Um, you know, go a little, go a little happy when I'm, when I'm really experiencing something, but that's, you know, a, a little bit of that Timmy nature to me. Um, and especially because when, when you're playing magic online, you have the freedom to do that in, in paper magic, it's actually kind of frowned upon, um, which is, you know, that, that's, it's a little, <laughs> um, well, the sportsmanship aspect, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you, you, you can't salt. It's rude to salt off your, out your opponent anyways, but it's acceptable if they can't see you doing it. Right, exactly. Right, exactly. Um, and 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 if that's something that you enjoy when you're on your own and there's no punishment for it, you know, go ahead and do that. As long as it's something that uh, doesn't isn't detrimental to any part of your gameplay experience, you know, if you want to salt <laughs> off, salt off. You know, some there are some great players out there who are you know salt monsters when when um, when variance isn't going their way, and you know, it sometimes it's very entertaining. Um, they'll have a lot of fans who just they're like, ah, I love the salt off. 
Oh yeah, no, definitely. I mean, you know, even watching like pro players, like watching, you know, like watch Nasif stream, etc. Uh, you know, like watching Nasif will sometimes tilt off, like he'll make a mistake and he'll just like be over. And I mean, now like once again, he is, you know, one of in discussion being one of the top five best Magic players in the world in existence. Like even he, you know, you can watch him salting off and tilting off on Magic Online. Some of there's a streamer Legacy <laughs> Council who's like I yeah, think the oh, most man, amazing. There's this one time he was just like. I mean, I think it was pretty far ahead, and his opponent had like two or three amazing top decks while he had nothing, and he was just, he was like, oh my, he was just salting off going this amazing rant, and then someone followed, and he like, oh, he breaks up, he's like, oh, he's like, thank you very much for the follow, I appreciate that, hope you're doing well, and just like, without missing a beat, goes right back into the salting, and like, it was just like, it was amazing. And it's funny too, because I feel like when, when someone's doing it like that, it is for their own catharsis, it's, it's, it's helping them... Uh, experience this moment and move past it. Um, usually these kind of players, because Arkin's obviously, for anyone who's not aware, Legacy Council is how he streams. Arkin is his Magic Online name, is fantastically successful. And that's the thing is he doesn't let the salt, th- these moments where he's embracing his sort of um, irritability, let's call it, he doesn't let that affect his overall game plan mm. because he will he will immediately as soon as the opportunity arises he draws the next card for his turn and it's something that plays he's right back in it he ne- he never left he just was you know he was just letting this you know come out that he's being you know some something's not going his way right now um, but he he never left that and so here's I just want to touch on one last super important thing and this happened yesterday. And I'm not demonizing anyone in chat for what they were doing. I get it. Mistakes. This, this is this is the point I want to leave on today, if that's okay with you, Arun. Definitely. I mean, this is, you know, seems like it'll probably one of the most important things. It's so, it's so easy to make a really big gameplay error at a very important moment in, in the game, you know? Like, it, you know, like, you can just, I mean, even... Even Canister at the, when he was streaming the challenge yesterday, I think he was in game two, and he got distracted for, like, he summoners packed it for, or he summoners packed it, he had dried on the field, and, like, he kind of got distracted and then moved to attack phase, and he saw that, you know, like, it's open, and so he swung with his, uh, uh he swung with his, right, the Elysian Grove, and his, his opponent was on Lantern or something, and had a, there's a Saga, which they made a construct and blocked it, and, you know, like, that attack actually literally costed him, I mean, he might not have won anyways, but, you know, it seemed like it might have actually cost him the match, and he was just, you know, he was, like, he was laughing about it. He was like, whoopsies, you know, like, think too much about these memes, etc. And it, you know, it's just, like, even, you know, Canister. you like, once again, one of the best of the best. And, you know, professional Magic streamer, pro tour champion, professional Magic player. And even he, you know, just, like, will swing his Dried of Legion Grove into an untapped uh, Urza Saga with activation mana up. You know, it happens to everyone. And it's a big, I think, I hope this is what you're going to get, you know, just, like, what happens when you make a big mistake? Right. It is. Um, yesterday when I was playing against Lantern, um, it's funny, all the stories seem to involve the Lantern player, but uh, there was a situation they had where they had an ensnaring bridge, they had a Lantern Insight, and they had multiple mil, mil rocks. And I was talking about a line I was doing, and I was like, I'm going to use this on that, this on that, and my prismatic ending on their Pithing Needle, which was important so that I could play Teferi to bounce their bridge so I could kill them, because the needle was on Teferi. And my brain just... Just sent that prismatic ending right at that Pixis of Pandemonium that was right next to it. I said what I wanted to do, and then I completely didn't execute on the right thing. <laughs> and at the and, and at that moment, I was screwed. I was not. I at that moment, I felt a pit in my stomach fall out, and I went, 
I'm going to lose this game because I made that mistake. And I don't, I don't think there's an out. Nope. I think I'm screwed. But I went, just braced myself for a second. I said, well, let's see if there's anything to do because they're not, you know, this game's not over. <laughs> Kozilek, which I'd brought in just as a way to buy me more time against them using mill rocks on me over and over and over again. Kozilek came to my hand. I was like, huh, I'm going to be able to get up to 10 mana. No, I think it was in my hand already, but I was like, I'm going to be able to get to 10 mana. And they're not going to mill away my land drops that I'm picking up. So I'm going to be able to get to 10 mana and cast this. It has a cast trigger that draws me four cards. If I draw four cards, my deck has enough answers. I might find another one, and they can't control four draws. For those who have played against Lantern Control, they try to manage what you're drawing, but they can only do it one card at a time. So any deck that can draw three or four cards in one go, as long as your density of, of answers is high enough, you have a chance. That's what I did. I found the cards I needed, and I won that game. I made a gigantic punt that I should have won the game with, but I moved on. Similarly, in the very final match I played, I made a mistake where I played a timely reinforcement, and I didn't get the three tokens because I had just made a dwarf token, and I hadn't bothered to remember exactly how the card works. And someone in my chat just kept bringing it up. They were like, oh, don't you wish you had three tokens here? Oh, it'd be great if you had three tokens here. Three tokens, blah, blah, blah. And this is the point I want to get to. When you make a mistake, during a performance like this, during a challenge like this, during a period of high stress like this, this is the worst time to worry about it. Move on. It's gone. The moment was there, and now it's gone. Deal with the game you have now. Deal with the moments you have now, because it's moving. You have the choice of staying in the moment and looking to the future where you're about to be or getting distracted by the past. If you're a musician, if you're an athlete, if you're a performance professional of any kind, if you make a mistake, keep moving. Don't stop. That is part of what makes people very accomplished. It's what, part, what makes people professional is being able to accept a mistake and move through it. And the better you do it, the more consistently you do it, the less people are even going to notice the mistakes. Then, and this is one of the most important parts, go afterwards and figure it out and solve it and fix it and find a way so that you don't make that mistake again. Um, maybe it's just more experience. Maybe this is going to happen to you in long tournaments. It's very draining to pay attention to that much information nonstop. But the more you do it, the better you're going to get at it. Um, my personal approach, I like um, being in reasonable shape. I found that when I was a teenager and when I was in my early 20s, I was less in shape. I mean, staying focused for six, seven, eight hours, that's really difficult. And some people are able to do it um, w without, you know, paying attention to their diet, paying attention to their exercise, et cetera, et cetera. But for me, I found it to be a big help. Um, again, the more you do it, the better you're going to get at it. The first time I was playing in a paper tournament that was like a 1K with like $25 entry fee. It's not F&M. It's not $5. $25 <laughs> entry fee. And you could win hundreds of dollars in store credit. Every round I felt like shaky. I was like, oh my God, the stakes are so high. They really weren't. But it was a new level of stress. Um, and so, you know, that can go away over time. But then again, even if it doesn't, just 
find a way that you can manage the situation. And I, I can't solve that for everyone because it's going to be very unique to you. Um, but, but I want everyone to believe that if I can do something like 8-0, a Swiss round on Magic Online against the cutthroat competition that that is, that you can do it too. You know? You just have to keep at it and get a little lucky and be a little prepared. Yeah, I mean, once again, I think I want to second everything you said, especially, you know, I think the two things you kind of mentioned, once again, you know, you win an XO run in the Swiss in order to top eight. Like, you know, you still, you had these multiple mistakes that you made that, you know, some of them you wound up getting punished for and some of them you didn't. But I think, you know, I, I just think it's good to know that just like, like you said, you will as you're going into this, you probably will make mistakes. You know, they're going to happen. Even the best and the best mm -hmm. of us make mistakes. And the, you know, the big thing is just like, how do you recover from that? And how can you keep your cool and, you know, just keep going forward? And which is, you know, the hardest part of magic. Something else I want to mention, I don't, I, you know, the, you said the chat person who would like kept bringing up, you know, like, oh, if you have three, three more of those, three more of those, uh, this is just kind of a memo to every, to anyone like, if you watch, like if you're, if you watch on Twitch, just like, don't bring up a mistake more than once. You know, you can, I think it's pretty okay to let, you know, let a streamer know, hey, like, I think you made this mistake. I think you could have done this. And you're like, oh, you know, then they'll say yes or no. It's so much of the time. But like, you know, leave it at that, you know, drop it. Just like, there's no bringing up the same mistake again and again, you know, especially, you know, someone, if you know, if you're doing it to Zach, who's been at this point, he's been, <laughs> you know, he's been hyper engaged in magic for like eight straight rounds, you know, just like probably losing it because... <laughs> just so much to keep track of and especially all the lines with that velo machias deck like sure you know them but even still it's just lots of triggers lots of keeping things and it's just like you know like you have so much on your plate just you don't need you don't need to see that like you 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 know you fucked up like four times in a row you know you don't need to be keeping like you know that's just rude just like you know like leave leave people be like remember ask yourself why <laughs> when you say something ask yourself what good will this do how will this add to the conversation right, right. and you know and I, like I it was not helping zach yeah i mean of course it, but that's why i brought it up and i mean but that, that's the thing is people do that to themselves right and that to me spoke mm. of that person's that person's attitude in that situation yep. i think would be to get hung up on that um, oh, i see so that that's that's fair and, you know, i thought they might just be being an asshole but i think you could also be well, very right maybe <laughs> Maybe, but the way they were saying it didn't seem like that to me. Um, I, I will say, on a flip side, you know that 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 was a challenge, and that was a challenge where I had this unbelievable run going and all that. When it's just a league, um, it, it can be quite useful not just to mention the mistake, "Hey, you made a mistake there," but also to remember, and this is very important during testing, to remember when you made that mistake, how much did that mistake matter? Um, today I was testing some of these Asmora cookbook decks, and uh, sometimes I was missing creating a food token. People in my chat were great at actually keeping track. They're like, you know, if you had two more tokens here, I think you would have killed them that turn. Sometimes it mattered, and sometimes it didn't. But it was important to know that if the deck had been being played at its best, if I hadn't been missing the little edges, that some of the games I lost, I would have won. So in that way, there's a sort of more respectful way to do it. But that was, you know, low stakes. I didn't really care about what my result was. I was just interested in experiencing the deck and seeing the testing. And that's why I'm saying there's a big difference between the, the analysis time, time where you're just experiencing and just, just checking stuff out versus trying to execute at the top level, right? And, and so your commentary should be mindful of the setting, right? A league is different than a challenge is different than the Pro Tour. Um, F&M is different from your weekend 1K is different from a GP. 
Um, and and uh, a final final word about mistakes on the same vein. You know, if you're playing on a team, team trios is one of my favorite ways to engage with magic. Or, you know, even if it's a friend who's playing on their own, if you do notice a mistake, you know, as long as you know that they know they made a mistake, maybe you just don't need to say anything. Because depending mm. on the person, they might be hung up on it already on their own. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they don't need you, you know, reminding them of it. So my, my, my good buddy Roy, who always hangs out in our chat, one of his most infamous mistakes was swinging an ink moth nexus into an arboreal grazer that he didn't know had reach and his opponent didn't know had reach. His opponent's teammate managed to spot that he could block at the <laughs> last second and let him know that he could block. But it was just one of those funny things and it's become a running joke of, did you know that Arboreal Grazer had reach? Um, but it was one of those situations <laughs> where he wasn't particularly tilted about it at the time, but I just looked over, I watched it happen and I went, you know what, now he knows. I don't need to say anything. He knows he made a mistake. I know he made a mistake. Everyone knows he made a mistake. <laughs> it's not, it's not helpful or necessary. Um, but uh, you know these these are these are great things. And it, you know, give yourself the time. Give yourself the time to to build up all these mistakes. Um, some people are brilliant, brilliant, brilliant players. They can look at a deck list. They can. I, I don't know how they do it. They can. I, it seems like they play a thousand games in their head with that deck before they've even touched it. And they almost never make any of these basic gameplay mistakes that I that I feel like I make all the time. I'll, I'll just be like, oh, I missed that interaction. Oh, I can't believe I didn't see that. Oh, I can't believe this works this way. If you asked me on paper, how do these two cards interact? I could tell you exactly what was going to happen. But within the context of the game, sometimes I don't notice until it's too late. But I try to make those mistakes as much as possible before I enter something that's big and high stakesy. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really well put, and I think you know, especially you know, I just want to emphasize the especially good point point that you made, that you know, you will, you're probably not a magical genius. Even Spike has talked about this, where you know, just like there's kind of two. Spike liked to mention there's kind of two ways to play, or there's two kind of people who play magic. They're the intuitive type, and who you know, just like can kind of plan out all their turns ahead of time, and then there's the non-intuitive type that you know just kind of has to go through and make the mistakes you know just like make that bad block you know like not realize that think that your arboreal grazer has reached and you know just like you most of the time you most of us are going to make these mistakes a lot before we learn them and you know often more often than not you learn something by making a mistake as opposed to you know just like not making this mistake and still learning it so there's definitely i don't think there's anything wrong with making mistakes and just you know forgive yourself and be ready uh, and don't expect yourself to not make mistakes. Don't expect yourself to be perfect, especially in the game of Magic. Because, uh, you know, <laughs> just one... All it takes is just one absent-minded thought. And, you know, like, you're... And now, all of a sudden, you're prismatic ending the... Not the land Or the lantern instead of something else. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, we, we've really gone off on the uh, couple topics we had today without Brian. Um, but I really hope that anyone who joined us has uh has had a good time along with us um yeah when any, i mean any yeah, I, yeah, yeah i mean i just i just got to emphasize you know like in testing with four color monkey blade i was 13 2 in leagues and even you know like con- counting today i'm 17 and 3 and i still 4 4 the challenge you know just like i don't you know i still had fun i still enjoyed it but just you know keep in mind in the end of magic had there's some luck involved in magic and like even you know you 
spend so much time preparing for a tournament and even tuning your deck and brewing your own deck. But, you know, anything can happen that day of. And, you know, just like if you really, you know, if my heart was set on this top eight and, you know, oh, I'm not going to make and, you know, I didn't make it, I'd be crushed. But, like, you know, that wasn't quite the case. I wanted top eight, of course, but it's just, you know, there's so much luck involved in the top eight. You have to play well. You have to be playing well on a day that you're drawing well, which is, you know, <laughs> sometimes you get one and not the other. Uh, but just... <laughs> yeah, you some, can control one of those. Yeah, there's something to really keep in mind is that... If you want to, if your goal is to top eight in a big event, just like the number one thing you can do for yourself to make that a reality is to play in as many big events as you can. You know, just like you maximize your chances, you try your best to maximize your gameplay every time. And if you play enough tournaments, you will top eight. Your chance of top eighting each individual day, you know, I think that all the time that's just based on luck. Like, for instance, for Zach, you know, just like he had a cup, he had a miraculous sequence where his opponent wound up giving him the extra land he needed on his risky keep because his opponent <laughs> didn't have the information that Renan six was already in zach's hand and that you know so opponent you know, just, confirmed not stream sniping <laughs> yeah exactly you know just really things to keep in mind that you know if your goal is to really top eight one of these things you just need to play in more and like there's no substitute for that like you need to play in these and you need to play your best until you're playing your best on a day that you're drawing your best and that's really you know it's it's kind of unfortunate because, you know, there's no guaranteed way to top eight. A, you know, you can't top eight. You, if you want to top eight, you're not guaranteed to top eight. There's no super secret to it. Like, do this trick. You want to every, every time. Doctors hate you, etc. cetera. <laughs> none, none of that, sadly. Uh, but, you know, the more of these large events that you play in and the more time you spend, you know, being focused on these events, you will top eight eventually. And, you know, like one, also... Going back to that, you know, Zach's played in the past several weeks of challenges, and he's X2, X2, you know, ninth place, X2, 1-3, X2, ninth <laughs> place. And, you know, finally, after a month of playing challenges, you know, like, he, he got, Zach got the top eight. This is playing a very strong deck, and a deck that, you know, Zach has almost supreme mastery over at this point. So this is, you know, I guess... Yeah, I mean, I'm just really trying to emphasize and hit hit the point again that just, like, top eighting is hard, and, like, you should not feel bad, or, like, doing well in big tournaments is hard, and you should absolutely not feel bad if it doesn't happen, because, it's, you know, there's so much to it. Zach has been brewing and playing with a top-tier deck. He knows the lines intricately, you know, just, like, everything, you know, he just knows the deck so well. It's a very powerful deck. It took him a month of playing weak challenges in order to finally get that top eight. After, you know, a bunch of heartbreaking top 16s and top 32s and a ninth place too. So, you know, there's definitely like, I'm sure there were results to keep you going, Zach. But, you know, just once again, you take all the best. You take everything you can, right? You optimize everything you can. You optimize the deck you're playing. It's a very good deck for the, you know, for the metagame. You optimize the lines of the deck. No one, you know, you probably know it so well. Just like, you know, you optimize everything. And even then, you know, it took you five, it took you multiple tries to top eight, you know, and even the best of things, best of, you know, best circumstances happening. So just really, you know, want to emphasize and keep in mind that it's okay if you don't top eight. You're going to not top eight a lot more than you top eight. But if you want to top eight, you know, like you should do exactly what we were taught. You should work on doing what we talked about here, and especially what Zach's been doing, you know, pick a deck tune it, learn it well, you know, know the math behind the deck, etc. Just like, so you can know, okay, like, do I wait, a, do I go for it now with maybe like a 40% chance to hit a time walk or I can wait a turn and see a draw step and, you know, if I draw one of these five cards, then that can get me two cards deeper and now suddenly I waited a turn, now I have a 60% instead of a 40. So these things, you know, this is how you do it, but 
there's still going to be a lot of luck. Uh, but luckily, Zack is a very skilled player, and he managed to do it. So we got a little cred. Yeah, man. Yeah. And, uh, and, and one last point is just uh, whatever your attitude is, just make sure it's working for you, you know? If, you want, if your attitude is, I want to win every tournament, but it's, it's making you miserable, you got to change that. Yep. If your attitude is, I'm just, I just want to show up and do as well as I'm going to do on a given day, if that makes you happy, that's as good as you can get, you know? Um, just keep at it. Yeah, very, very well said. And, you know, I think with that actually might be a good time to conclude and move on. I kind of, Zach, what's what's the next section called? Oh, I kind of slipped my mind a little bit. Oh, man, what is it again? It's a little, it's bumps and dumps, baby! Woo! Yeah, um, I mean, we, we've mentioned him enough times, but, uh, you know, Gabe, Gabe Nassif, I think, gave me my first raid ever from him. Uh, last week, and he did it again yesterday. It was a huge, huge, huge bump of viewers. Um, he was restreaming what I was doing during the challenge, which I think was bumping my numbers. So it, it's it doesn't need to be said that he's just like a great pillar of the magic uh, the magic environment and uh, the the modern environment, especially. Um, so hats off to you, Yellow Hat, um, and uh, dumps to just all of the reactionary people who are already talking about things getting banned in modern in a more serious way without sort of, uh, <laughs> I don't know, without being self-reflective, I want to say. Um, you know, it, it's annoying to me sometimes that we live in this headline uh, attention-grabbing world. You know, people really want to make these sens sensationalized claims. And there's so many of them happening all the time that, so frequently people don't get called out on their bullshit um, or their playing of the game. And, and they would never even tell you. They might be like, oh, I don't really believe that. It's just a great title. Everyone wants to read the, the, the person who's making the big statement. Mm. Um, and it's just not me. That's just not, it's not who I was raised to be um, or who I maybe shaped myself to be. Um, so, you know, just, just a little bit of dumps on that. And, um, but bumps to those people who take the moment to be aware that this is the game everyone's playing at the moment. And um, as long as you're aware of that, you don't need to be taken advantage of. You don't need to have your expectations smashed into little pieces just because an article you read uh, turns out to be wrong. <laughs> All right. I'm going to, you know, definitely go bumps to us. I've really, Zach, I've really been enjoying getting to play challenges with you, you know, in the weekend and kind of hang out in your chat, like between our matches and stuff. You know, sometimes it's like I'll be paying attention to your match, then my match gets really deep. It's like, oh shit, you know, like I can't watch Zach's anymore because like I'm gonna have time troubles, etc. But it is, you know, it's it's been very nice getting to play and like talk about you know bad beat stories and watching you know in your chat and everything. So definitely bumps to us for you know being able to play in these challenges and you know doing at least you doing well. I'll get there. You know, I will one day. It'll happen again. I'll find the broken deck and make an 8-0 run. Uh, but until then, we are just gonna you know beat home, beat down with some. Uh, little little cruddy creatures and maybe a monkey uh otherwise definitely bumps to dogs you know like i love my dog uh fig he is super chill and super awesome and super sweet and super loving and super happy and they're just very you know they're very positive and they have very good intentions uh you know especially my fiance is out of town this weekend uh so fig has been keeping me company and it's been just you know a lot of fun just getting to take him on walks outside you know just like go to a like go to you know do a hike go to the nature trails etc 
Uh, so that it's, it's been very nice to just get to chill with my dog. And no, yeah, I, don't, I don't don't think I have any dumps this week. You know, everything so far so good. Like, you know, I don't, uh, I'll probably have dumps. Maybe I'll try and come up with some dumps in two weeks. You know, there's got to be something. <laughs> dumps, to, uh, dumps to Brian being away, not yeah. because he doesn't deserve it, because he absolutely does, but because without him, there's no one to check us on yammering on forever. And yeah, ever. yeah. I mean, yeah, also, big, big bumps to Brian. We definitely, we miss your presence, Brian. This would have been a pretty good episode for you to mention some nonsense too. Uh, but luckily, you know, I'm feeling, I'm feeling especially janky these next two weeks. Maybe I'll just go off the deep end. We'll see. Absolutely. Um, we'll we'll try to uh, keep people abreast of the different things that we're, uh, we're we're playing with. I know people can find you at uh, is it a underscore sing on Twitter.com? A sing five one seven s a s i n g h five one seven. Yeah, I try and, okay. you know, post. I don't post too much, but especially in the discords, in our Serum Vision Discord or in the Faithless Brewing Discord, you know, I'll, I'll post a lot of this pegative lists that that <laughs> I jump into leagues with and, you know, I don't necessarily do super well, uh, but they're, you know, still trying to learn and gather data. And there's some, I think there's still a lot of area to be explored with Modern Horizons too, uh, which, you know, hopefully it'll be a little rough, but it'll be fun to explore. Yeah, absolutely. I, I still have a bunch of ideas that I would like to get to. I, I made a long list of ideas when the MH2 spoiler was coming out, so I have some brews that are of a less competitive nature that I might feel like I'm a little more incentivized to touch on yeah. now that I've made a, made a good mark. Like, I want to play some mono-black control with Cabal Coffers, you know? I, I yeah, got, yeah. I gotta try it. I haven't I, even I mean, seen anyone trying to do it. I, I think you're exactly right, you know? Like, coming coming off of a good finish is really a great time to be like, you know, nothing matters. Like, I'm going to take this garbage deck and I'm going to do garbage and nothing matters because I've already shown that, you know, I've got it in me. Absolutely. Absolutely. I dig it. I hopefully we'll have some good jank stories. I hope to have some good jank. Absolutely. I love, I love some good jank. So there we go. Huge, huge discussion on a bunch of stuff. Um, so, you know, thanks for joining me on this jig. We could have just taken the, the week off, but we, we decided to soldier through without Brian and talk about a subject that is in many ways fascinating and exciting to me. Um, and I hope it has been for all of our listeners. So um, that's it for this week. And uh, stay healthy, stay happy. Uh, find your vaccine spots if uh, you still yes. haven't been vaccinated, people. Schedule yep. your second shots if you have to. Please do. Just real real quick on the COVID vaccinations update. This new Delta variant, um, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines and most others seem to be fine against it. But if you are not vaccinated, this Delta variant is sure to ruin you. Uh, and so, yeah, like get vaccinated. If you're not vaccinated, this you will get the Delta variant eventually. And it's going it's not going to be fun. It's going to be much less fun than getting vaccinated. Uh, so please, 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 please get vaccinated. Uh, yeah. However you can, yeah. definitely. They go to, I think, the local government sites oftentimes uh, will have um, good instructions. Right after the the uh, uh, previous episode, the the two days after that is when I got my first shot. And I got to tell you, it was basically painless. I couldn't believe it because I've gotten enough needles in my life. Um, getting blood drawn is a lot more painful than the COVID shot was. It was uh, it was remarkable. Uh, I don't know if you guys, you you science magicians, have developed some super tiny needles or something, but uh, well done. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it seems to be a little depend on the person and like depending who you are, you might get have more side effects after the first or second. For me, it was more after the first and less after the second. Uh, but you know, you never really know. But anyways, regardless, it is two hundred percent. 
it is a billion percent better than getting COVID. Like I will, I will promise you that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, take care Rune, and I will, uh, be back to chat with you and hopefully Brian in uh, two weeks. Sounds good. Take care. Thanks for listening to episode 21 of the Serum Visions podcast. If you like what we do and want to get in touch with us, you can find us at twitter.com slash serumvisionsmtg, email us at serumvisionspod at gmail.com, or join us on Discord at the link in the episode description of your podcast player or at serumvisions.podbean.com.